Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer weiteren Sitzung. To another session of the Corona Investigative Committee. Session number 114, the inverse principle. We are being presented loads of things which uh, show the contrary of what they are when we take a closer look. So it's like a, I don't want to say it's a diabolic uh, view of things. Uh, I'm out of that. But we do note that certain things that, for example, the, um, uh, the idea that the unvaccinated fire funder the um, pandemics is not the case. And we're going to hear of the different of uh, that today. Uh, today, we are here together in the studio again after I've come back from Israel. I met great people. Uh, next day, after last week's session, we went to a little rally, so to say, where we met people who we had here on the show, Rotan Brown, for example. I think Brown was her name. She was there and they're doing great stuff. Um, they are publishing a newspaper by now and we are getting articles in German, think, or at least in English, so that we can publish them. I've seen people who are in working in the German-Israeli cooperation and they are very concerned about everything. And so I think it's very important that we do our work of enlightenment there. I think it's important we have this German anchor, which is very important because it uh, informs all of us here. But internationally, there is a need for information. That's why we are starting with that Israeli outpost. We've got a new format again, which is the review, where you can look up uh, the uh, review of what's been discussed here in a discussion of Rainer and me as a summary talk uh, with notes, annotations, cross-references and additional ideas. A very interesting thing. Beyond that, Rainer, do you have anything to say? Well, a couple maybe. Uh, for one thing, um, there is a, a lawsuit uh, uh, for um, uh, against uh, Dr. Sukhari uh, Bhakti. I'm one of the um, attorneys. Um, and there's a total of four of us. Uh, and we've uh, compiled a few things uh, that we uh, will publicize. Uh, it's really of a great public interest to um, sue uh, someone like Sushari Bhakti uh, for sedition to uh, call him a Nazi. That is uh, ludicrous. Um, it's the opposite. The people who uh, filed that lawsuit against him, uh, they should be sued. Another uh, point is I get a lot of um, uh, mail um, with a lot of information. I would like to thank you for this explicitly, among other things, books that some people uh, wrote them themselves. For instance, one person who uh, looked at uh, natural healing uh, for 40 years and he just compiled it. My wife is reading it and she's really over the moon over it. So great that we should get this kind of thing because that is what it's all about. We are the ones who need to reconnect because we need to 
make the best of this inverse principle, the fact that the current system, globally, at least in the Western world, uh, is collapsing. We need to use that opportunity to de disconnect from it and do our own thing. As you're mentioning, Zuharit, I'd like to add that I was shocked when I was in Israel where we have the case that um, if you have associations that um, things may um, offend the Nuremberg Codex, as we see with the experimental substances here, or something with the with the inspections that we have here, uh, they should be treated as a gene treatment. And as it is uh, labeled um, as a vaccination, it's uh, taken out of that area of response. And so we could see it going in that direction. Um, this is, of course, uh, what the Israelis note. And the point is, that they said that children of Holocaust survivors, if they dare to say this, they are called a Holocaust, uh, um, uh, Holocaust um, deniers. And uh, this is something what I can say, okay, it was the worst event ever happening and that has other aspects. The other thing is, I can also say what's the lesson I learned from it, and that's what I would take home. How can I prevent that these things happen again with people or bad things, maybe in a different context? How can I stop it? How can I nip the buds, so to say, um, if I have the impression that um, I can put it into this, whether I put it into Nuremberg Codex or not? It is very uh, telling that even relatives of Holocaust survivors are not allowed to mention this vaccination in that context. And the actual dimension of the problem is becoming apparent even in the mainstream media. There has been a publication by the Federal Ministry of Health in Germany, according to which there is at least one severe adverse uh, effect uh, among 5,000 vaccinations that was taken off the website immediately. And they're speaking of a million people killed by now in the US. Um, and it's among so-called um, received sources, not uh, any conspiracy theorists. And what was taken off uh, the website of the Federal Ministry of Health is actually much worse. Let's see if the, um, the, uh, the technical crowd can get this. Uh, um, let me uh, read this out. Maybe can you, you can go back to that post. Okay, that's the post. One of 5,000 people is affected by severe adverse effect, severe adverse effect after a COVID-19 vaccination, not just dizziness or something. So if you should have um, the suspicion that you might have adverse effects, get uh, medical help and uh, report your symptoms to PEI uh, Germany. That is an official post by the um, Federal Ministry of Health. It was immediately de uh, deleted because they were probably getting panicky. Uh, it's much worse though, and that is only a fraction of the truth, because we know that uh, we have heavy underreporting here. Um, uh, 
severe adverse effects. Uh, Health Ministry publishes incorrect figures. Risk of uh, vaccination uh, effects is higher than indicated by the Paul Ehrlich Institute. Um, as indicated by the Health Ministry, according to Paul Ehrlich Institute, now uh, Karl Adwach, the Minister of Health, has corrected himself. Um, and it says uh, one in 5,000 vaccinated is um, um, affected by severe adverse effects after a COVID-19 vaccination. This is an incorrect figure. And that's written by Berlin Zeitung. That's mainstream media. The um, reporting uh, rates uh, for all vaccinations together was 1.7 million, uh, 1.7 million per 1,000 vaccinations for severe reactions, 0.2 reports per 1,000 vaccinations. The PEI figures referred uh, only to individual vaccinations, not to uh, vaccinated people. Thus, the risk for severe adverse effects is um, at 1 to 5,000, uh, is not 1 to 5,000, but much higher. So uh, even the um, experts uh, say that. So for uh, fundamentally uh, uh, vaccinated people, it is uh, at 1 to 2,500. For boosted people, at 1 to 1,667. And with uh, fourfold vaccinated, it's 1 to 1,250. What does that mean? Well, the, often, uh, the more often you get vaccinated, the worse you are. And we can only see the tip of the uh, iceberg right now. And to uh, well, that's what we're talking about that's a publication by the PEI and the federal ministry of health to say against this background that we are talking about um uh, conspiracy theorists um and uh, to to take someone who uh, actually um epitomizes this uh, as mr abakti did uh, very early on just like uh, mr vodak that is really uh, brazen there's one thing that we need to add uh, is that this refers to the report of Paul Ehrlich Institute, and we see this is an under underreporting, saying that only three to five percent, maximum ten percent of the cases are reported, and uh, so it's quite probable that at least in these corona vaccines, by the stigmatization, that uh, this is tried to uh, shut people up. And it's even worse, so that rather we are probably in uh, at the um, at the this is probably the bottom of of it only, and then this figure there would be different here. Yes, um, even um, if you take a conservative view, um, then you'd have one severe adverse effect um, for 125 vaccinations. And that's very conservative. It's probably much worse. However, let us welcome our first guest from Poland. I'm pleased to welcome him. We have visited him in Poland when we were there in December, I think, end of last year anyway. and. We have Sigurd Brown with us. Hello, I can hear, hear you perfectly well. Excellent. Can you hear and can you see me? Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, you, so I'm, I'm I'm here at the Houses of Parliament uh, where you you came last year in autumn, late autumn, and we started our Polish Nuremberg uh, Committee. Since then, there were 
at least 10 uh, meetings, sittings of our committee. Uh, here is a booklet uh, mm -hmm. with your speech you gave uh, last autumn. Dr. Kunish uh, accuses in Poland, it says wow. here. Uh, and and the so-called uh, Wilk report. Mm -hmm. uh, Wilk, uh, uh, my colleague, member of parliament uh, uh, of, of previous term, uh, he's an attorney in law and he uh, presented uh, a very, very uh, good uh, sketch of uh, all that, uh, all that so-called pandemia, uh, unlawful criminal activities uh, on different levels. So this is this is uh, the first uh, first Nuremberg uh, uh, booklet. Uh, the second is coming in in a few weeks, uh, and uh, I would be very happy to to have you back in Warsaw. Maybe this autumn. Why not? What do you mm -hmm. say? Mm -hmm. Why not? It was really nice. We enjoyed our stay. We met a lot of nice people, and we were surprised how there are a lot of people, many more than here, who kind of refuse, kind of refuse to go along with the official narrative. Let me briefly. Well, it's uh, officially, yeah. officially, it's uh, it's uh, uh, not less than. 50% uh, of our Polish population, uh, people who refused to uh, accept uh, vaccination. And this, I think, this is not the worst result, no. 50%. It's very encouraging. Let me briefly introduce you and then you can uh, uh, explain whether or not it's correct or not. But here's here's what our viewers need to know. You're a <laughs> Polish politician. I think you're the uh, you, your party is the only one in parliament which opposes the measures, correct? That's it. Okay. Confederation, Confederacja, the only political uh, party in the parliament uh, opposing that COVID regime. Yeah, you're the one of the leaders of the Polish party Confederacja. Uh, you initiated the project that you just mentioned, Nuremberg 2, Nuremberga 2.0. Um, the project aims to gather evidence against crimes against humanity of those supporting segregation based on vaccination status. Now, you too have uh, come under a lot of pressure lately, and this is what you're going to talk about today. Um, you're going to sum up the years. It's it's more than it's almost three years now. Uh, sum up the years of pandemia in Poland and one year of their uh, Polish parliamentary group um, Nuremberg 2.0 activity. Also, you're going to talk about the official symptoms, as you call them, that is the government propaganda of the next wave coming. And, of course, this is what is very disturbing, your own personal uh, situation. Um, they're trying to come after you. Yes. Uh, uh, but first, let me, uh, let me uh, tell uh, the viewers, the listeners, that after two years, uh, we know exactly that uh, uh, that uh, pandemia, pandemia project is uh, uh, is a crime, <laughs> is a crime against humanity. In Poland, 
we have official 200,000 deaths, excess deaths toll. That is 200,000 people who died prematurely, uh, more than you would expect comparing to the statistics of previous years. Uh, year 2020 and uh, 2021, uh, these are, these were uh, two worst years in Polish history since the Second World War. Uh, more more than uh, more than uh, half uh, of a million of mm. Polish people died uh, each year. And like, this is what years are you referring to? Which are the two worst years? Twenty one and twenty two. Uh, twenty 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 and twenty twenty one. Mm -hmm. So the normal. Uh, death rate is like five. Uh, how many? Like five, half a million. Uh, the normal normal death rate, which is which is enormous, uh, uh, would be uh, between three hundred thousand and four hundred thousand. And these years we have over five hundred thousands. Wow, that's intense. And these are these are uh, uh, those whose deaths are not uh, uh, officially, are not connected with uh, the uh, so-called COVID, with the, you know, with the famous uh, virus. These are those who died because uh, the hospitals were closed, because the whole, uh, the whole uh, health system, healthcare system was blocked, was uh, disabled uh, on purpose, by the authorities because the doctors were uh, well let's say persuaded uh, or tempted uh, not to practice uh, normal measures normal procedures which would be uh, which would be helping people the doctors uh, medics uh, were uh, were persuaded to shut down uh, to close the door and uh, to uh, to advise people to test themselves first before they can get any help. And dur during one of our uh, committee sittings, we presented a very disturbing case from uh, South Poland, from Silesia, of a 34-year-old woman who died after eight or nine hours of testing uh, at the front door of the hospital. She was she was kept uh, there without any help, although it was uh, diagnosed uh, immediately after she was brought to the hospital uh, that she needs help and uh, that it's very urgent. And uh, even more, the doctor uh, ex knew exactly what kind of procedure should be uh, applied, but the internal regulation at the hospital uh, made everybody uh, wait, made everybody wait until the test result is uh, uh, brought from, from a distant hospital 
in some other city okay. uh, while the young lady was uh, sitting and laying there and dying finally and this is this is what we have uh, documented and uh, if you if you uh, see if you have a look at the transmission uh, uh, of our uh, meeting uh, you will see the doctors and the managers of the hospital uh, presenting a false document because after it, ha it happened they procured they prepared a, a, a new version of that internal regulation uh, the version that would uh, would uh, whitewash them uh, but we uh, we uh, uh, we obtained the copy of the real uh, uh, real regulation that is the decision of the hospital's uh, chief manager uh, and this case was brought to uh, to the prosecution uh, in Rybnik south poland silesia region and uh, well we we have to wait uh, until we see whether the prosecutor uh, manages uh, or is willing to bring this case to to any court uh, but this is the kind of activity that that we engaged ourselves uh, here we uh, i mean uh, my my uh, friends and collaborators uh, me myself uh, as you said i am a member of parliament uh, for the first time uh, in my in my uh, political life uh, since uh, uh, 2019 uh, i i have this uh, i have this uh, kind of occupation <laughs> uh, in my previous life i used to be a documentary film director uh, i also i also made some documentary films about uh, uh, eugenics uh, as uh, as uh, criminal activity uh, in the history of of mankind in the 20th century so so i am uh, you might say uh, uh, somehow prepared and somehow uh, sensitive enough uh, to react and to try to to understand what is going on. So uh, coming back to to the death tolls, uh, we have uh, we have uh, uh, we have uh, uh, let's say. Uh, pandemic uh, holocaust uh, uh, in Poland because uh, the whole communist regime uh, for 45 years uh, didn't manage to to kill as many Polish people as fast <laughs> uh, and and this this should be impressive but obviously is not impressive uh, for uh, the uh, for the authorities the authorities represented by the Ministry of Health, personally uh, a gentleman uh, whose name is Nijelski. The authorities are, uh, since last month, uh, are preparing the public opinion uh, for the next wave. 
and here in the parliament uh, you can already see uh, the signs visible signs uh, of uh, uh, the parliamentaries uh, accepting this uh, this near future because you can uh, see uh, masked parliamentaries again not everybody uh, but uh, some of them are are very uh, very eager to uh, to meet uh, this this nearest future for uh, two uh, last years for most of the time uh, i was uh, personally excluded from the um, uh, opportunity of uh, uh, of uh, having my uh, my say and having my vote at the parliament uh, obviously uh, on on the basis of unlawful unlawful uh, masking procedure uh, although i produced uh, that is uh, that is uh, lawyers that i asked uh, produced uh, some very very um, impressive expertise uh, stating that uh, this this uh, um, obligation cannot be lawfully imposed on any parliamentary uh, that uh, didn't change a bit uh, the uh, the parliamentaries uh, uh, the uh, uh, the ruling party's position uh, and i was excluded for for a year and half probably i was excluded from the parliamentary procedures i couldn't i couldn't take part uh, in in the uh, in the sittings uh, and in the parliamentary debate uh, i was also i was also there were also uh, financial uh, penalties imposed uh, on me uh, quite uh, quite uh, quite vicious <laughs> i might say uh, and uh, uh, last week the procedure of uh, veiling of my immunity uh, had started i was uh, three days ago uh, i was called to a uh, to a sitting of a special parliamentary committee uh, where uh, the uh, the documents were presented by the police by the state police uh, and uh, and the committee voted that uh, it is going to the committee is going to recommend to the parliament that my immunity uh, be uh, veiled uh, and uh, and the procedure is uh, is uh, is on uh, so i might expect that it uh, it is it is going to be voted uh, at the nearest sitting, uh, at the nearest session, uh, which will be maybe maybe uh, in uh, ten days or or next month. This is my my nearest uh, future. Obviously, uh, obviously, uh, the reason, the excuse, the pretext is uh, me uh, being unmasked uh, during some uh, political 
events uh, uh, connected with my political activity uh, last year, the previous uh, year, uh, 2021. Uh, I, I, uh, a year ago, uh, I took part in a, a political campaign. I ran for a president of uh, the city uh, where I was elected uh, an MP from, uh, and uh, during that campaign, the police, the state police, uh, used to uh, to uh, 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 to intervene during our uh, our uh, campaign uh, events, uh, writing down the names of uh, all participants, uh, me including. And that is the material presented to the parliament, uh, and uh, that procedure is uh, is navigating uh, to uh, well uh, to them having me uh, having me tried uh, for uh, uh, for not being masked. Uh, you know, there there are ten ten different cases brought by the police brought to to the parliament one of these cases is me uh, is me driving a car uh, during one of our uh, political demonstrations uh, which was blocked by the police uh, and uh, i asked the driver to step out uh, because uh, uh, because uh, he the 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 regular person would be would be uh, stopped immediately by the police, and I I very carefully uh, drove by the uh, by the by the device that police uh, installed in the middle of the street, and the, it was very important because the car uh, was carrying our. Uh, our uh, sound devices and it would be impossible to continue the demonstration without it so for uh, for i think uh, maybe two maybe three minutes of driving uh, uh, the police is also uh, is also uh, uh, trying to uh, to bring me to court and if tried and if convicted uh, i might face uh, the possibility of being deprived of of uh, my uh, my uh, right to uh, to be here to be uh, in the parliament i don't know what kind of scenario the police and the authorities the government what kind of scenario they are uh, writing right now but it, it is very interesting it is a bit funny uh, but uh, uh, but uh, obviously this is this is also one uh, one of the symptoms of uh, of the next wave. I think the authorities don't want to have any any uh, errors in the system. And me personally and my my uh, friends and collaborators, we are. I am proud to say uh, we are creating this this kind of error <laughs> that makes it more difficult to present the whole pandemia business as as being accepted by by the whole nation
Yeah, well, I mean, that's what Matthias Desmet always tell, tells us, you know, it's important to have the one dissonant voice like uh, in the in the crowd of uh, of singing along with what the government says um, in order to keep people awake and uh, stop the system from going into overdrive. I was wondering, I mean, like realistically, this is like petty stuff that they're like holding, bringing up against you. So that's no crime. I mean, is it possible um, to 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 uh, uh, you know lift the immunity in Poland uh, with such minor problems? You know, I mean, like wrong parking. I mean, this kind of stuff. Is is that? Have you looked at that from a legal point of view? From a legal point of view, it's everything here is is it's it's a laugh. Uh, from a legal point of view, the whole pandemia project is uh, uh, is uh, deprived of uh, of any logic of uh, any uh, scientific medical base and uh, and deprived of any legal base as well which you you know perfectly well probably best <laughs> because you observe uh, this uh, how this project is being developed uh, internationally all over the world by the way, I I uh, I want to uh, to uh, to say thanks to to you personally uh, because your presence in Warsaw a year ago, almost a year ago, was very important. It was a very important important sign uh, for for this small but significant part of uh, of the public. Uh, I mean the part uh, of the part that reasons in any way. Uh, so your presence was a sign uh, that uh, this is this is really going on. That this is not uh, some some uh, uh, mistake or illusion. That uh, uh, that our situation here in Poland is very much uh, similar to the situation of other nations, other countries. And, uh, and uh, thanks again. And uh, I also want to, to say thanks uh, to, all, uh, the, uh, to all the people uh, that uh, you managed to uh, together uh, in your project, uh, Professor Bagdi and others, Thank you very much. Uh, uh, we, uh, not not only here at the parliament, uh, but uh, but in general, Polish people listen also to your voice, read your your statements. It's very important. Please please remember that uh, that uh, what you say uh, is being uh, uh, very uh, very. It is very important for for us in Poland too. Well, you know, we're saying what we don't we have an opinion of course, but this opinion is based on the testimony of all these in the meantime over 400 experts whom we interviewed and we can't just ignore what they're saying. Um, we do have an opinion which is based on all of these experts testimony. That's why we believe firmly believe that there's never been a pandemic. This is a plandemic. Uh, the one moving part 
as Dr. Mike Eden calls it, is the PCR test. That's that's what they used in order to create cases that in reality didn't exist. We also know that the basis of this, and that's why it's so interesting to talk to you right now, is eugenics. Eugenics as it was uh, invented, I guess, uh, through or with the help of uh, Charles Darwin's idea about uh, survival of the fittest in the um, based on this original idea, uh, the other side, as I call them, <clears throat> started the British Eugenics Society in 1906 and the American Eugenics Society, I think, in 1917 or so. And this is what drives this. This is important to know, because unless you know the whole story, you will never understand what's really going on. It's eugenics behind this, and it's now turning into genocide. People have to understand this. This is the most important thing to see. That's why they're fighting so hard against people like you and me, Professor Bhakti and others, because we're the voices that they don't want to be heard. That's why it's so important for us to continue to talk, and that's why it's so important for us to make your case or Professor Bhakti's case an international incident, because that's what it is. The international community deserves to know what's really going on, and they're being lied to by our politicians, by our mainstream media, because our politicians are not our politicians, and I'm pretty sure it's the same situation in Poland. They are all products of the World Economic Forum. Most of them with fake biography, uh, biographies. They all do the bidding of the World Economic Forum and the people who are behind this. That's why it's so important uh, to keep talking. I want, I want to bring up two cases that might be important and interesting. Uh, for you. Uh, one uh, recent case, case of death, sudden death. Uh, uh, a gentleman who was uh, uh, responsible for uh, the uh, tests, uh, government tests uh, buying. He was, uh, uh, he was uh, the person uh, that the government uh, authorized to buy tests in the beginning of uh, that uh, project in uh, 2020, uh, the gentleman uh, from Warsaw dies in Albania uh, last week, probably. And he's been already uh, cremated uh, and brought to the country uh, uh, as, uh, uh, as a pile of ashes. Uh, uh, why, uh, why do I think it's important? Because, because uh, uh, this also supports uh, uh, the thesis that it's, it's a deadly business, possibly for everybody, that people who were connected with that uh, uh, large global operation, operation that, uh, uh, that uh, obviously uh, uh, demanded uh, global planning and, and global execution, these people uh, will uh, also uh, be in danger uh, of, uh, of being somehow uh, uh, got rid of, disposed of, uh, because, because that, that uh, poor guy who died there recently was very closely connected with the previous Minister of Health here in Warsaw. 
and uh, uh, and uh, this this is from one side. Yeah, this is uh, uh, this is uh, well for some people it would be a, a kind of alarm sound, but for us uh, this this also brings some uh, some hope to our reasoning because uh, even if we think we can see how uh, how small resources. Uh, we have, and how how uh, uh, how powerful the enemy is. We can also see, and we can also count on them fighting themselves <laughs> between themselves, uh, and uh, as soon as this process starts we can also count on uh, having uh, some uh, some uh, some of them uh, choosing to be witnesses rather than than victims rather than victims of uh, of the inside mob vendetta uh this is this is one point that i i wanted to make the other the other person that i want to point out uh, to uh, to bring to to your attention is a deputy minister of health here in uh, poland mr kraska waldemar kraska he's uh he's older a bit older than me. He was born in the beginning of the 60s, and he's the oldest uh, of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, of the people uh, running the Ministry of Health of mm -hmm. Poland right now. And uh, what is what is curious and what is what is interesting here is that his official biography begins in 1989. 1989. A gentleman born in the beginning I mentioned Mr. Kraska because I asked the ministry and I asked the, uh, the government uh, several times for information about uh, this gentleman's biography prior to, to 1990. I asked about uh, the schools, uh, uh, possible early career or training that he possibly uh, uh, could undergo. Uh, uh, and I never got any answer. Once I even uh, was able to put the question to, to Mr. Kraska himself when he appeared in, in, in the uh, Houses of Parliament uh, with uh, some, some message, some speech, and I took the uh, opportunity and, and put a question 
uh, officially. Uh, it's, it's my statement uh, and lack of any answer was uh, officially protocoled here. So, uh, I bring up uh, this, this example uh, because you mention people uh, with false biographies, with faked biographies. And I, uh, I want to show you uh, Mr. Kaska as, uh, uh, as a possible piece of a larger picture, larger puzzle, uh, because, because being a doctor, a trained doctor, uh, under the communist regime, he would have uh, undergo uh, a very, uh, a very uh, well, let's say regular army training for doctors, because that was that was uh, kind of routine. Um, every every uh, student of uh, higher medical school would undergo soldiers training, uh, and every uh, such uh, doctor would be uh, included would be would be a part of the soviet uh, warsaw pacts war plans <laughs> uh, in other words uh, every doctor was very well known his existence and his person was very well known to the communist army's uh, services so my my thinking goes to that to that uh, previous era when the whole eugenics and transplantation business started for example in poland in 1985 we have the first successful heart transplantation so not everybody knows that to have such uh, such project started, uh, you had to have uh, uh, this project accepted from the um, from the center of from the heart of the communist regime's army, because there would be no heart transplantations without army helicopters flying and bringing human parts human bodies parts human organs all yeah. over the country mm -hmm. so uh, so uh, why is this history and this transplantation business uh, possibly important here because because uh, i think we have we are dealing here with some kind of organization I think this is obvious this, that this, this uh, Plandemia operation had to be very carefully planned and executed by uh, people very uh, carefully chosen to, to, uh, to play their roles in the uh, propaganda system, in the political executive medical uh, services all these people had to be 
had to be handpicked by some organization. So my guess is that if we look for that organization, that global organization, we might, uh, we might uh, have uh, difficulties with, uh, uh, with uh, getting to, to uh, uh, with, with, uh, um, with finding out uh, what, what, uh, uh, what group is that, that, uh, uh, that uh, higher command of uh, uh, of uh, of the Plandemia project, but uh, without even knowing who is the uh, who are the generals of that this operation, we we can be sure that they had to handpick and hire some uh, some local uh, organizations to conduct the operation locally, let's say in Poland, for example, in Poland. And uh, my guess is that this has to be uh, a group of people connected uh, and uh, loyal to each other on the basis of some, uh, I have to use this word, of some previous crimes, of some previous atrocities, because this is too big to uh, to uh, to uh, to accept uh, the element of risk of somebody's unloyalty. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know about other countries, but here in Poland, my thought and my historical memory goes to the structures of post-Soviet army secret services. And uh, if I could, uh, if I could uh, do my research internationally, uh, I would look for the people who started uh, who started and who became important in the transplantation business in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. Uh, and these people were also somehow connected with the uh, abortion business. This is also very important and I can see I can see these doctors here in the parliament in, in Warsaw, these doctors who are uh, presiding the committee of, uh, uh, of public health uh, and who were responsible for, for a smooth um, proce uh, procedure of all these, all these uh, COVID regulations. Uh, uh, these people who were who were uh, who didn't hesitate to uh, to proceed unlawful laws, unconstitutional regulations, and I can see that there are uh, there are there is not one kraska. There are more doctors uh, born in the end of fifties, in the beginning of of sixties.
uh, who uh, who are important for this uh, operation here in Poland. So uh, coming to conclusion, uh, I think if we look for the enemy, the enemy has to uh, has to use uh, uh, organizations uh, which uh, which loyalty and cruelty uh, had been previously tested uh, in uh, during during some other operations uh, connected with uh, with health with uh, mm, uh, with uh, with uh, mm, politics and army because I don't know about uh, I don't know exactly about other countries, but I know about Poland that uh, the army, communist army, was the only structure, was the only organization that could guarantee uh, two qualities: that is uh, hygiene and uh, punctuality. Doing uh, different things like, for example bringing human heart by some army helicopter on time. <laughs> uh, obviously, obviously, uh, one one uh, moment in uh, in uh, in the history of medicine uh, is very important here. That is uh, the uh, so-called uh, brain death uh, category, because it's it's strictly political. It's not scientific. It's not medical. It's political. There, the moment came when uh, when the uh, technology and the logistics uh, was, uh, let's say, mature, ripe enough, uh, and then a political decision had to be made to open the markets for transplantation business. And my guess is, <laughs> maybe maybe you might think that we, we had uh, gone some, uh, uh, we had, we went very far away from the pandemia problem. But I think that this is, this might be a trace this might be uh, 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 some clue for other people in different countries to analyze uh, the, what is going on. Uh, that that uh, the roots of pandemia project uh, go to to the the end of the seventies, maybe beginning of the eighties, when uh, when uh, these maybe still alive but uh, but uh, uh, but i'm not sure uh, these people who who decided that they want to uh, to uh, grab all power uh, or pro all property and uh, all freedom of of nations all over the world uh, they started building their structure and their their net 
of uh, of different uh, of different organizations dif in different countries uh, that were uh, that were uh, uh, that started to uh, to execute the Plandemia project three years ago. Well, I think that's an interesting theory. I mean, we do see some sort of military involvement here as well, because like the the vaccines were, um, especially in the begin beginning, uh, distributed by the army. And um, like even in this, uh, you know, this old people's home that I went to, like as a, I saw this from outside, there were like two soldiers, like delivering the the, vac uh, the vaccine. I mean, claiming that it had to have like some sort of, uh, you know, this like cooling uh, streak basically so that it could not be disconnected or so. But like, it's strange that we see this, uh, that it's it was like, to me, it's still like a little bit weird why the, the military would have been involved in the first place. Plus, we also see that in some new, uh, uh, neuralgic uh, places, like in the um, Bundeskanzleramt, what's that equivalent? Chancellor's the Chancellor's Office. There was also like a, a crisis um, committee and it was headed by a general. And also like involved in, I think, uh, the um, German Ministry of Health, there was also some some uh, military, military guy involved. So that's interesting that there's, there could be like some sort of connection. We would need to look closer in that, into that. Um, with regards to the, the case that you mentioned with the guy passing away in Bulgaria, that Albania. was Albania, but that's not the one where there was this scandal um, with the inhalators that he sold for a lot of money, that weapon dealer. Um, oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes, 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 exactly. You, you, uh, uh, you're you're uh, perfectly right. That is the guy. Oh, that okay. is the guy. I I said tests, uh, uh, and uh, I I should have said I should have said uh, inhalators. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So there was this like I'm familiar with this case. So there was a a big scandal because he sold these like dysfunctional inhalators for a lot of money. And then uh, the scandal broke, and then he just disappeared and was looked for, like with an international warrant. And now, all of a sudden, he just passes away in Albania. Hmm. Maybe, maybe because I mean, as you, as you were suggesting, maybe because he got caught in, you know, like some internal, some infighting, or it could as well also be that he maybe just got a new face and is now somewhere else in the Caribbean. Uh, uh, also possible. We don't know. Also possible. Well, we know that there is military involvement in all of this because you're absolutely right. The only people, the only structure that can guarantee that kind of punctuality and security is, of course, the army. Many people claim that the army in many countries is part of the deep state. Uh, we know that there has always been military involvement in this because if we look at how it all started at, at the exercises, the first one, I think, was uh, Operation Dark Winter. Uh, shortly before 9-11. That was a strictly military exercise. And it's, it's it, it literally spelled out what is happening right now. Uh, that was a military exercise. And one of the participants, um, uh, um, a man, a former, um, I think, lieutenant colonel from the American uh, Army uh, by the name of Jim Bush, he testified uh, for us as a witness. So that was a strictly military exercise. And even if you look at the uh, last, what I would call, uh, dress rehearsal, event 201. 
It was the usual suspects involved in this. Um, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, Rockefeller, I think, but also Johns Hopkins Health Security. Security. That always shows you there is military involvement in this. I, I want to, I want to uh, bring up uh, one more histori historical moment, historical case, uh, very important for uh, uh, Poland, for the uh, beginning of the so-called transformation mm -hmm. of the communist state into a post-communist uh, state. 1985, uh, General Jaruzelski, uh, who, who was now, uh, who was then in charge uh, of the country mm -hmm. uh, as a soviet general in in the uh, polish uniform mm -hmm. uh, he goes to new york and he meets uh, uh, mr rockefeller jr late jacket rockefeller jr 1985 in autumn uh, uh, he goes to new york uh, uh, to take part in the uh, United Nations 40th anniversary, that is official, but unofficially, he meets he meets uh, David Rockefeller Jr. The meeting uh, arranged being arranged by uh, Zbigniew Brzeziński. Mm -hmm. uh, three vice presidents of the United States uh, being present at the dinner, three vice presidents. Uh, and uh, we have uh, three, at least I know of three different uh, reports from that meeting, because I want you to know that this is, this is no, no conspiracy theory. This is pure praxis, <laughs> pure conspiracy praxis. Uh, we have three documents, one of them uh, signed by Mr. Brzezinski himself, the other signed by, uh, uh, by uh, um, a gentleman whose name was Gurnitsky, and he was an army uh, assistant for General Jaruzelski, and some third report uh, is I know uh, is uh, uh, is uh, at some American university's library. I don't know the third report. I only know uh, know it from some quotes in some uh, uh, historical book. So what I want to uh, to uh, to stress is that this is this is the moment when. Uh, in Moscow, Gorbachev is in power since since uh, spring of that year, 1985, and uh, uh, the transformation deal is already is already maybe not done, but it's already planned because the discussion at Rockefeller's at David Rockefeller's dinner table, the discussion is not about uh, if, whether the regime change is going to take place. They're discussing business that they are going to make 
after the transformation. And there is one very important, uh, especially uh, for for this uh, this uh, uh, conversation important moment when uh, they discuss the possibilities uh, that will open for the GMO business after the Iron Curtain uh, is uh, uh, is erased. Uh, so, uh, I can judge by myself, in 1985, uh, I, would, uh, uh, I would probably uh, not even know uh, how to read, how to understand the, the GMO abbreviation. Uh, I didn't know about genetically modified uh, uh, agriculture. Uh, so, uh, the discussion uh, is between uh, Jaruzelski and Rockefeller, but uh, the GMO expert, I don't remember his name, is, uh, is uh, some Nobel Prize uh, uh, winner uh, from uh, Rockefeller's side. So, I bring it up because my, uh, my thinking <laughs> is that uh, if, they, if they discussed GMO perspectives uh, that would be immense uh, after the uh, the Eastern European markets uh, and agriculture opens for the that kind of uh, of business. If they discuss uh, GMO, uh, they could easily some other time maybe some some other people. They could discuss the transplantation uh, business as well, mm. and uh, and I want uh, I want you to to see uh, that uh, this is this is very important that you have an army man, <laughs> Soviet general, coming from Poland as Gorbachev's emissary, meeting with uh, uh, with let's say not army but uh, finances men uh, from the other people. side meeting with <laughs> private people we're talking about <laughs> wef products our politicians yes. are not our politicians and they haven't been for the last 30 years we have been served up these products made by the world economic forum for the last 30 years we didn't really have a choice uh, this is a sham democracy in my view at least because the people who we thought we could choose from were all of them, in particular in Western Europe, but it seems maybe in Eastern Europe as well, not as many though, all of them were either, well, they were actually produced by the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program. And uh, if you, now that you're talking about this meeting, I remember you told us about it when we were in Poland. Now that you're talking about this meeting, it, it shows us precisely that national sovereignties don't really play a role. They have divided up the world amongst themselves. They're pulling the strings. They think they can pull the strings. Of course they can't because we're going to stop them. But they are trying to pull the strings according to what serves them. And we're talking about private entities. Rockefeller is a private entity. Uh, the WHO is a private entity. All of these global NGOs, if you want to call them that, they're all private entities. But I had no idea that this was going on in 1985 already. Makes sense, though. It does make sense. 
Well, uh, so uh, since uh, uh, since uh, all the was uh, maybe indirectly, uh, but handpicked by Jaruzelski and his uh, chief uh, security uh, communist, some other communist uh, general, uh, Czeslav Kishchak, they were handpicked by them. Uh, I can easily understand uh, what is going on now. Uh, as being somehow determined by, uh, by that uh, long, decades-long process yeah. of, uh, yeah. of selection of, of the elite, uh, handpicked hand by the Soviets and by, by Rockefellers. Yeah. That's, that's how it transcends national sovereignties. Well, um, Jayush, we're going to have to keep the spotlight on you so that people will know the world over what is going on in Poland and so that you have extra protection. I think this gives us all of us extra protection. We have to keep on speaking truth to power, which is what you're doing in the parliament. You're even now uh, in the parliament, right? I'll be going back to to the uh, to the session that is still on. I, I have my statement uh, uh, today uh, scheduled uh, sometime this afternoon uh, and i want to take it i want to i want to give that statement as as because because i still can yes. <laughs> right. because uh, because i don't know how long it is going to be possible because uh, one more fact, one more information. Uh, some uh, small but important changes were implemented to the uh, parliament, Polish parliament's uh, internal regulation. That is, uh, they installed even, well, it was voted today. <laughs> it went through the committee uh, yesterday. Uh, a small change uh, that will make it possible to uh, have uh, uh, the parliament uh, 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 work uh, remotely, <laughs> remotely, without uh, without bringing the parliamentaries to the houses of parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, they used that procedure since uh, 2020, mm -hmm. but they used it. Uh, uh, with uh, with that excuse that we have uh, a pandemic, uh, the so-called pandemic uh, on. And right now they changed the regulation and now it says that uh, you can have us voting and even uh, and even uh, 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 debating uh, remotely uh, from your home with, office, uh, uh, yes, uh, from uh, from from uh, from our uh, homes, uh, uh, with uh, uh, without without uh, the uh, the authorities declaring the state of pandemia, yeah. uh, but but on the basis uh, that uh, uh, that there is a danger of uh, 
having pandemia. Yeah. So, so this this might might go on forever. Yes, this is their intention. It will not go on forever. But this is the this is basically what uh, Professor Matthias Desmond calls free floating anxiety. There's something wrong. That's why we have to stay wrong. We don't know what's wrong, yes. but there's got to be something yes, wrong because exactly. if it weren't, we wouldn't in, we wouldn't issue these uh, rules and regulations. Well, thank you very, thank much. You very much. Thank you very much, so Jagosh. Much. Uh, it was very interesting and it gave us, it reminded me that I had something, I, I kept thinking about this particular meeting that you mentioned when we were in Poland, because it tells us that this has been going on for much longer than we think. This kind of transnational uh, attempt to rule the world. It's a it's a it's a dystopian James Bond movie, but you know all James Bond movies have a happy ending. Thank you very much, Jagosz. Thank you. Mm -hmm. God bless you. You Take too. Care. Good luck Goodbye. with your speech. Goodbye. Ha! Huh. Wow, it's so amazing. That is absolutely If you look closely, you do see um, if the Polish have taken some of that home that we were there, this international aspect of it. That was the finding that it is done the same way everywhere, that they are moving in lockstep. They have the same stories with the pandemic, the grandpa uh, being affected, the panic papers, all of that same story over and over again. That makes it clear. And I'd like to point this out here Clearly, as it is well aligned everywhere, they think that is proof that it can't be planned. But the point is that the opposite is the case, because otherwise you would say, how bad is it in our country? Is there only three deaths? Maybe we wait then or do something else, closing the borders, for example, or something like that. That would have been possibilities to take action. But uh, we had the Ash um, from Nepal who told us no deaths and they live there and they closed the whole of Nepal. Same in New Zealand. Nothing happening. Nevertheless, everything is uh, being frozen by a, a woman who we don't know who it is, just like we don't know about Biden who it is. Um, Sonia Elijah, she was with us in the last session. Yeah, was it the last or the one before that? Hi, Sonia. How are you doing? Hi, Rainer. Hi, Vivian. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, even the weather is good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cooled down in the UK a bit, so... Yeah, it's cooled down a little here. I think it even started to rain this morning, but uh, and there's going to be more rain uh, predicted for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, I believe. But it's still pretty hot. This is summer, you know? Everybody exactly. keeps saying, oh, my God, it's global warming. Not really. It's summer. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I had prepared for you and, and your viewers um, a some slides uh, to, to what I'm going to be discussing uh, my investigative yes. report on the Pfizer documents. Is it okay that I go ahead and, yes, and share, share the screen? Um, so I'm just going to do that. Let me briefly, yeah. uh, briefly just to remind our viewers uh, who you are give them a little bit of background. You have a background in economics. You're a former BBC researcher. Uh, your analysis of the Pfizer COVID vaccine safety report received worldwide attention. And that's because since uh, December, 
of 2021, I believe, you have investigated and analyzed the Pfizer trial documents that were released by court order. And you have single-handedly, it's not just 10 or 20 or 100 pages, you've single-handedly gone through thousands of pages of documents and discovered many anomalies that speak to fraud. You have written four in-depth investigative reports for trial site news um, and an interview um, of you by an Australian media company regarding your first report went viral on YouTube, over 1.4 million views in three days just before YouTube banned you. This is what they always do. This is their knee-jerk reaction. But of course, it can't keep us from speaking the truth. Yeah, go ahead. It's, uh, uh, this is about the Pfizer documents. This is what we've been waiting for. Great. Exactly. And, and just to, before I begin, we, you know, we need to thank the, um, the plaintiff group, Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency, mm -hmm. because if it wasn't for that group, we wouldn't have access to all these documents. So, uh, um, so back in August 2021, um, this group of about 30 medical professionals led by Dr. Peter McCullough uh, uh, sent a FOIA request to the FDA to ask for all the documents that the FDA relied on to authorize the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. Um, three months later in November, what the FDA did, they just released only 90 pages, which is like a fraction, like less than 1% of all the documents. And they released that November, 2021. So, um, and, it, they then had to take them to court. This is the plaintiff group to get the FDA. And it was actually through a court ordered, uh, it was court ordered by Justice Pittman that they actually had to disclose all the documents and they did like over a, a, kind of like a, a schedule, a time schedule. Um, so every month now we're getting thousands of pages released. Um, so the first report uh, focused on the, um, it was the cumulative uh, analysis of post-authorization adverse event reports. And uh, this report focused on, it was a three month period from December 1st, uh, 2020 to 28th of February, 2021. And um, it's just, it's very alarming because what you're seeing, oh, hang on, let me see, right. Okay, so first of all, over 42,000 cases were recording, were recorded. Um, so these are individuals who, uh, who had adverse events and the, I mean, the amount of adverse events is staggering. You've got over a hundred, over 158,000 events. These are symptoms um, that were reported spontaneously to Pfizer. And that's literally an average of a single person having at least three symptoms. Now, there were many unknowns in this, in this 38 page document. Um, we have uh, at least over 2,900 cases where the gender is unknown. Uh, we have 6,876 cases where age is unknown and over 9,000 cases where the outcomes are unknown. Wow. And that, that's very, very alarming. Um, so what actually stood out when I first read the report, and this is in the beginning of the report, it actually, they, Pfizer had to hire extra staff to process 
the large volume of spontaneous adverse events. They had to hire an additional 600 full-time employees to process all of these adverse event reports. So that is just so shocking um, because they didn't expect I guess they didn't expect it. I've no idea, but they had to, the fact that they had to take on this extra, the extra stuff really speaks volumes here. Um, so that that's quite significant. Um, now off the bat, we know 1,228 people were recorded to have died within three months after taking the vaccine. And this was known to Pfizer by the end of February, 2021. Now what's really remarkable, um, I found a quote from, uh, this is back in April 2021, we have Dr. Mace Rothenberg, the former Pfizer chief medical officer, and when he was talking to the Washington uh, Journal about the development of the vaccine, he said, I can tell you that no corners were cut and there have been no deaths wow. that have occurred directly as a result of the vaccine alone. So that's yeah, very yeah, shocking. But you can, but you can see in, in the way that he tried to phrase his, uh, in, in, in the way that he tried to, I guess you could say, manipulate his own words, you can see that there's something not quite right. He knows exactly. it, but he's trying yes. to get around it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I pinpointed some of these major sort of adverse events. So these are the AESI is an adverse event of special interest. And we have uh, a category of uh, cardiovascular events. And under that category, you know, we, I've just listed some cardiac failure, arrhythmia, tachycardia, um, uh, myocardial infarction. So now we have uh, over 1400 cases of the is cardiovascular AESIs. Now, uh, we know that 136 of those, the outcome was fatal. And then this is what's really important. The median relevant event onset latency was less than 24 hours. And I'll just explain that. So that means basically that 50% of those relevant, relevant and outcomes, including deaths, occurred less than 24 hours after receiving the vaccine. And this points to vaccine death causality, because it just it happened so, you know, so soon after the vaccine was administered. Um, so this, this is important. Um, now, what is very shocking, going through this document, women with over th like three times more affected by these adverse events. Um, now, I, I particularly uh, uh, have highlighted anaphylaxis here, which is a potentially life-threatening allergic reaction. Women were over eight times more affected when it came to anaphylaxis. So this is really important. This is a statistically significant. This is statistically significant data, and it real and it reveals you know, the possibility of gender-specific vaccine safety risks. Mm. The fact that women were more affected by the vaccine. Um, then we've got you know, uh, anaphylaxis, which I, I sorry? I, I was just wondering um, if, if there could be ex any explanation. Do, do you know why, why something oh. like this can happen, that it's so much more uh damaging to women than to men or like yes no that's a really good question vivian i i don't know that i'm not a scientist i don't know it's just it is it's definitely statistically significant and i i, I why or why exactly 
exactly why are women more affected mm -hmm. and it's not just nominally it's like three times more and you know it's some to do you know with anaphylaxis over eight times more so there is something going on here and um why why women are more affected but i can't i can't give you an answer to that um so and then we have um four out of the nine deaths this is this is to do with anaphylaxis four out of the nine deaths occurred on the exact same day the the individuals were vaccinated again this strongly suggests vaccinal death causality um Another thing that was very alarming was the pregnancy outcomes. Now, we know that pregnant women were never officially part of the Pfizer's pivotal clinical trials, um, but this is the report that I am I'm, I'm sort of analysing is the post-authorization adverse event. So this is after this is after the um, the EUA was given, and uh, so we know that there were. This is very alarming. Uh, 270 pregnancies. Out of those pregnancies, 23 were spontaneous abortion, that means miscarriage. Um, uh, we have uh, premature birth with neonatal death, spontaneous abortion with uh, in, in, intrauterine death, two each, spontaneous abortion with neonatal death, and normal outcome, one each. But what is very shocking, so this is out of the 270, no outcome was provided for 238 of those pregnancies. So, you know, they were simply not followed up, which is just so shocking given that, you know, uh, we have the CDC and many health agencies around the world saying, oh, it's perfectly safe for pregnant women to have the vaccine. Right. Um, now, at the end of this report, it's very interesting, there was an appendix and eight pages uh, in this appendix, and it was just listing all of the AESIs. And, and that's just very, very shocking, eight pages of it. And spotted, like uh, sprinkled everywhere within this report, you have Pfizer's conclusion. This cumulative case review does not raise any new safety issues. Surveillance will continue. And that that's sort of uh, sprinkled throughout this report. Um, so that was my first report that I wrote. I'm going swiftly on to, um, uh, I looked at now the case report forms. Um, and um, these... Uh, the, I think these, uh, these are the data that um, Naomi Wolf referred to when she said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to inform you that we're witnessing a genocide. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I mean, Naomi Wolf, yes, she's, she's got into with her team. Um, mm -hmm. I think she's has, she has many many people dozens of people who help her mm. go through this i've single-handedly done this yeah. starting for last december um but these case report forms are so important when it comes to clinical trial research mm -hmm. they capture standardized clinical data from each patient which includes the at these adverse events and they play a very important role in pharmacovigilance so these sort of thousands of pages of case report forms were dumped around march 1st um and i just have prepared them some slides for you and i've just sort of done some snapshots just because it's easier for people to see it this way so what i kept what i found was there was many many case report forms where you have missing sae numbers sae means serious adverse event
So these SAE numbers were missing, and I've just sort of highlighted a few. I also would like to point out that if you see at the top right, can you see site name? And it has in brackets 1128, and it says Ventavia Research Group. Now, if you know, Ventavia was, you know, uh, it, uh, there was a lot of scandal attached to, to Ventavia. Yeah. I personally interviewed Brooke Jackson, mm -hmm. who is the former regional director uh, of, of um, she managed some of the Ventavia trial sites. And she was, and she's obviously, you know, she's as her, as, as a whistleblower. Lower. Ventavia was the subcontractor used by Pfizer to run their clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, uh, and she obviously, she, she spoke about, uh, you know, their gross incompetence, poor laboratory management. Um, they put patient safety at risk. They, uh, she pointed to fraud. So you have, um, so it's very interesting that what I found obviously backs up what Miss um, Jackson uh, ha has claimed. Um, so missing SAE numbers, we have missing barcodes on all the lab samples, which is again, very alarming. And then you have a lot of inaccurate data entry and all this really strongly speaks to, you know, gross incompetence at a minimum. Huh. Um, now, what is interesting now, you have certain cases where uh, the adverse event was actually COVID-19 uh, related pneumonia. And what is interesting, it says here, Potential COVID-19 related pneumonia should have triggered a COVID illness visit. So you have a trial investigator sort of inputting this data uh, and sort of querying it. So it shows that the protocol was not being followed um, it, because obviously the COVID illness visit was was not triggered. It, it, it didn't it didn't happen. Um, and, and that's very alarming. So people who had these sort of COVID-19 related symptoms should have had a proper official COVID illness visit and it should have been recorded and there were special forms that needed to be filled in and that didn't happen here. Um, you have, um, I've put sort of MC meaning Mary Campbell, she's one of the investigators, so she opens a query saying please update AE term, AE meaning adverse event term to COVID pneumonia. So she's wanting it to be corrected, right, and then you have uh, Jen Vasilio, JC, answering, site has not been made aware this event was COVID pneumonia, has and has no records that state COVID. Therefore, the term cannot be updated to such. So this is just shocking. They're just saying, no, it can't be because we have no record of it. But they haven't even followed their own protocol. And you have then the response, uh, the queries then closed very swiftly. Uh, because obviously, you know, that that uh, that that response is has, you know, it, it, they found it satisfactory. Uh, again, very shocking um, here, which is just very alarming. You actually have a participant's death recorded before a COVID ill visit. I mean, that is just so shocking. Um, so you have a lot of this going on uh, with these case report forms. And it's just highly, highly alarming. Now, I was going through, um, again, these are thousands and thousands of pages. So, for example, I found one subject. Again, this is with Vantavia. And you have them having at least three adverse events. And it was all, all sort of connected with the kidney, impaired kidney function. Now, this subject had um, no prior history because you have medical, their medical history 
history as well, it, uh, logged in as well. So no, no prior medical history of any sort of impaired renal function. Um, but all of a sudden, after two doses of the treatment, um, they suddenly develop kidney stones, severe hypokalemia, and then you have a UTI. And uh, I, all of these events are not related to the study treatment. I mean, again, with a lot of these adverse events, that is the conclusion that these investigators write, that they, they sort of say, this has got nothing to do. Um, right, so now this document, I just did actually very recently. So this was released July 1st, and this I think is a very damning document. Um, it was over 3,600 pages. I went through nearly all of them, and um, it provides narrative comments on hundreds of trial subjects who due to adverse events, which include death, pregnancy, COVID-19, or just no longer meeting the eligible criteria were withdrawn from the trial. And so I focused on the trial subjects who were given the vaccine, not the placebo. And um, what is just so alarming, Reiner, is that for every adverse event, which includes death, Pfizer's stated opinion is always there was no reasonable possibility that it that, that it was related to the study invention intervention. Um, so that's their sort of conclusion throughout. Now I just pinpointed some of them. So we have, for example, this subject one zero zero seven one one zero one. So this person suffers from a, uh, has a cardiac arrest that proves to be fatal. Um, they have had uh, two, do two doses of the vaccine. Uh, you can see 30th of July and then on the 20th of August. Now they, they suffer from a, a, a cardiac arrest. And uh, again, you have, the, you have the writing, it's just not related to the vaccine because it occurred two months after the last receipt of the study agent. So you have them writing that. You also, which is very alarming, you have it was unknown, this is, this is in the narrative comments, but I, I've just sort of paraphrased, it was unknown if an autopsy was performed. So my question is, why, why was there no official follow-up, no inquiry into, into getting an autopsy performed? Uh, as we know, cardiac arrest is listed as an uh, adverse event of special interest in Pfizer's own post-authorization post report on these adverse events. But, you know, according to, to Pfizer and the, and the investigator, it's got nothing to do with the vaccine because it happened two months later. So um, now we have a, a person who, who again, is it, it's a death. So we know this outcome is death. Um, and they suffered from arteriosclerosis. Now, they were given the vaccine on the 10th of September. And um, again, we have uh, the comment down below. Uh, that this is to do with the investigators. In the, in, in the opinion of the investigator, there was no reasonable possibility that arteriosclerosis was related to study intervention, but rather it was related to the suspected underlying disease. And you have, of course, Pfizer concurred with the investigator's causality assessment. But when I looked into that subject's medical history, there was no mention of this disease. So, but according to Pfizer, as an investigator, it you know this this disease was it's an underlying disease that this patient had and and that's why they died. It's got nothing to do with the vaccine. Um, 
Now, this is actually really critical, this, this next slide. Now, if you remember, back in December 10th, uh, 2020, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was the Pfizer-funded report entitled Safety and Efficacy of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine. Now, in that report, it mentions only two, um, a study mentions only two vaccine recipients who died, but I found a third death. I mean, this is really shocking. So this third death was never included in the official report that was published in the NEJM on the 10th of December. And so you have this individual who suffered from, so they were vaccinated on the 7th of October, 2020, and they suffered from a syncope. Uh, and it was reported on the 26th of October that they were admitted to hospital because they fainted in the middle of the night. Uh, the subject was transferred to the ICU and the subject died on the 11th of November. The cause of death reported as unknown. It was not reported if an autopsy was performed. And again, this is just so shocking. Per Pfizer, syncope, most likely coincidental. So this is a third death officially. It was never included in their report. Um, it's just com been completely left out. Um, I, I was just very shocked to discover this. Um, now we also go to, uh, I came across subject 11781107, a 48-year-old female who developed uh, lymphodenapathy uh, and had at least four enlarged lymph nodes after receiving her first dose of the vaccine. Um, now, again, in these, uh, we have a, a section of four narrative comments. Uh, it reveals that even after the hospital, this is really shocking, the hospital oncologist believed that the vaccine to be the most likely cause for, for her condition, for her lymphodenopathy. And even the trial investigator, this is Pfizer's trial investigator, gave the opinion that there was a reasonable possibility that this condition was related to the study intervention. But what is just shocking is Pfizer did not concur. So even after the oncologist and the trial investigator was saying, well, there is a connection here, Pfizer did not agree. Um, and that's the end. That's the end of the slides I prepared. Um, so I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Well, it seems to me that despite the fact that some people who have looked into this and um, have commented on uh, what was released by court order, um, some of them may be some some people claim that many of them are or some of them are alarmists but if i look at the data you just showed us there's nothing alarmist about it we should be even more alarmed than these people are one of the persons one of the people who we spoke with is karen kingston um and she told us and i explicitly asked her about i think this was a trial involving children toddlers uh between six months and four years old and for some reason just like the story you told us about how people seem to have been withdrawn from the study, I asked her about whether or not there is a possibility that some 2,000-something children who seem to have been withdrawn from the study died. And she said there is a possibility. Now, that's, that may sound alarmist, 
But after hearing what you have told us, it could very well be true. Yes, I mean, really at this point, we cannot trust anything, I believe, that has been presented here, that Pfizer's data, I believe, there's, there's, there, it points to fraud, you know, they, for example, they didn't include that third death. Why didn't they do that? Um, I, I've, you know, so I, I, I'm always, I write on what I see, the evidence before me, going through all the data, going through all the reports, going through thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And obviously I'm, this is an ongoing investigation. I, I will still continue to be doing this. Um, and, this is just what I'm finding, you know, and, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't come from a medical background, but I, I do have good attention to detail and I, I'm recording all this and writing on it. But it is just so alarming. And and, um, you know, the like the report that I mentioned with the, um, the lady with the enlarged lymph nodes, we know there was a study published in Cell that said that the vaccinal mRNA and the spike, the spike proteins, the vaccinal spike proteins remained in the lymph nodes for at least up to, to up to eight weeks. Um, I also forgot to mention, because I just obviously had limited time and I didn't know how much time you were going to give me. I did another further report on the non-clinical overview uh, of Pfizer's uh, document. Um, so that's also on trial site news. And what's really alarming are the, the, the literally the safety studies that were not done. You know, you had no safety pharmacology studies were done. No genotoxicity studies were done. No carcinogenicity studies were done. And these are novel. These are novel. It's a novel treatment. Um, the, the lipid nanoparticles themselves, two out of the four are completely novel. And we know that these, they, they cause inflammation. There was a study done on mice. This is to do with Aquatis's technology, the, the, the lipid nanoplatform technology um, was, was highly inflammatory in mice. Uh, we know that they, they did these biodistribution studies, but they used the mRNA was encoded with um, luciferase, which was sort of to light up where it was going the body they never encoded it for the actual spike protein um, that's in the vaccine so they do not know and we have this on record i interviewed uh, uh, david david wiseman for trial site news who's been following all the sort of fda those verbat meetings uh, those pivotal meetings where they sort of go ahead and, and recommend the vaccine for young children and infants up to you know you know six months of age where you had I think it was Dr. Gruber, who was Pfizer's rep, who said on record, this is all, and I put this in my interview with David, where he said, where a, 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 a doctor, Dr. Portnoy is asking a question, how much spike protein is being produced by the cells? And for how long does it, and for how long? How long does it persist? They had no idea. No idea. Those studies haven't been done. It's a sham. It's quite obviously a sham, a complete sham. I mean, there's no other way to explain this. It, there's no way that this is all just a coincidence or mere negligence. They're trying to push through the so-called vaccines. We all know they're not vaccines because yeah. vaccines, by definition, yes. immunize you against a certain yes. disease. They give yeah. you sterile immunity. But in this case, they admit, even the makers of the so-called vaccines, they all admit, no, we don't know if it's, if, no, yes. it doesn't do that. We don't know if it's effective and we don't know if it's safe. Now, yes. through your work, 
because of this FOIA request uh, and the court order, now we know they just didn't care. They just yes. didn't care. They even, uh, it to me, it looks like they have been uh, trying to hide what's been going on. Yes. They're forging the numbers, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think this is going to cost them very dearly. I think yes. this is one of the companies that will have to be taken down completely. Yes, I mean, it just points to fraud. So yes. if you think about it, all these authorizations that were granted the EUA and the conditional marketing authorization given by Emma, I mean, what's it based on? It's based on on fraudulent data, yeah. you know, or, 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 or hidden data or it, it, these gross in, inaccuracies, these anomalies, these, you know, what what's going on here? Um, I, I, and also, observer blinded trial. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, which means that this wasn't a double blinded trial. So the, uh, I think the administrators who were giving the vaccine were blinded, obviously the participants were blinded, um, but everybody else was unblinded. And as when it came to potential COVID-19 cases, the team was unblinded. And when you unblind a trial, it leads to uh, a, a loss of data integrity which is really important when you when you lose your data integrity what what meaning does it have yeah and bias sorry i forgot to mention you inject a huge amount of bias mm -hmm. that yeah. is crucial yeah and and you mentioning about these aren't vaccines yes these are gene therapy products if you look in the security exchange commission filings for both moderna and pfizer they themselves classify it as such as a gene therapy product. If you look up the FDA definition, the FDA definition of a gene therapy product, it, meet, it meets it. Yes, Even they know it, they know it. We know from the yeah. BioNTech, I, yeah. I don't know if it's BioNTech or Pfizer, but it doesn't make a difference. We yeah. know from their own papers that they didn't yes. expect yes. to uh, get authorization yes. for these uh, yes. drugs. It was only possible because they redefined um, the word vaccine. Yes, they That's redefined the it to be more, more palatable for the yes. general public to accept yes. it, as opposed to, you know, do you want to have injected a gene, a gene therapy product into exactly. your arm? Exactly. Remember the one, I think this is a, a, probably a German, uh, judging from his accent, a German uh, CEO of, I think, Merck who in a speech which he probably didn't expect to be recorded and then played to the general public, he explicitly said, if it hadn't been for this pandemic, he didn't say pandemic, he said pandemic, people would never have agreed to get injected with, a, with an experimental a gene therapeutical substance. He explicitly yeah. said so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so no, it's just very damning, all of it. Um, and obviously I, I just zero in on the evidence that I'm seeing before me and, and just, uh, you know, I'm just continuing to investigate this, but, uh, it, it's just truly shocking. It really is. Yeah. It, it seems, you know, we, we thought we're now pretty close to getting to the bottom of it. No way. We're not even halfway there. Much, much more. A horrific data will come out, I'm afraid. And what's most disturbing, as far as I'm concerned, is that there's so many people involved in this who are willing to sell their souls to the devil. They will have to pay dearly for it, dearly for it.
Yes, I mean, I just believe the people, the public, have been fed lies. Of course, me, you yeah. know, I, that's that, that's what it points to. Uh, I don't come from an alarmist background. I, I speak very calmly. I speak on the facts, on evidence, and but I do believe uh, the public have been yeah. lied to. There's no other conclusion. Um, if you if you take all the evidence, I like to say, if you if you take the a totality of the evidence, there's no way that these people are acting negligently or that this is a coincidence no way no way impossible any jury one of these days there will be many juries any jury will find these people responsible beyond any reasonable doubt i'm yes, absolutely I convinced hope, i hope so and i just wanted to add i mean i um i interviewed uh Stephanie de Grey. This was quite a while ago, and I'm just saying she was part of the children's, uh, the 12 to 15 year old uh, mm -hmm. uh, children's, you know, the Pfizer trial for children. And, uh, you know, I interviewed Stephanie de Grey, who's the mother of Maddie de Grey. Maddie was the, the, the 12 year old at the time who was life altering uh, adverse events because of the vaccine. And, you know, they're, they're completely, they were put, her, her symptoms, her, her case was put down to the child has anxiety <laughs> or some stomach issues. So this is just the level of sliding things, sort of pushing them under the carpet, uh, you know, just uh, el eliminating people out of the trial. And uh, it's, it's really, truly horrific. You mean the child who was sitting in a wheelchair has anxiety? Yeah, anxiety, stomach issues. Jesus Christ. We're coming yeah. for them. I hope so. It's like what they say that someone had a necrosis in the leg and they said, oh, it's psychosomatic. I mean, how's, yes. how's that possible? It's so, so crazy. Yes, it's all, it's all in their head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, this is an ongoing investigation, you said. Uh, we would love to have to, I wouldn't want to hear you again, but I want to know what's going on. Even though it's really horrific, we, we must know what's going on. So we will be very happy to talk to you again. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you both. Thank you for taking the Thanks time. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you, Sonia. Have a bye great bye. weekend. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Mann, das kann doch nicht wahr sein. But everything uh, fraudulent. I don't know what these people are thinking. Do they say, I don't care as long as we make money? Well, they've done a complete soul out. Well, un incredible, really incredible. Dr. Katharina Lindley and Dr. Robert Verkerk, are you with us? Yes, we're here. Super. Very nice to meet you. This is the first time I think we're talking to each other, right? Yes, great to meet you both. How are you? Very good indeed. Yeah, yeah. wonderful to, to, we've been following your work for years, obviously, and, uh, you know, fantastic yeah. to, to have this opportunity to share information. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you right now? Kat, you go first. I'm in Texas. Uh-huh. And, and I'm in the I'm in the UK. Okay, the great, great. So let me introduce you briefly. Um, Katerina Lindley is a family physician. So you work at the front lines and owner of a direct primary care clinic. 
You're the president-elect of the Texas chapter of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and also on the World Council for Health, which welcomes um, oh, the, the steering committee member. Uh, and you, Robert, are the founder and executive and scientific director of Alliance for Natural Health, ANH, which works towards protecting, developing, and implementing innovative and sustainable approaches to natural and sustainable health care. A new analysis of survey data by the Control Group Project reve reveals how over 300,000 people from more than 175 countries have fared without taking a C-19, without taking a COVID-19 vaccine. The analysis revealed that the control group did not place a disproportionate burden on health systems and severe COVID-19 disease has been rare. Nine days after the survey report was uploaded, ResearchGate removed it. I'm not surprised, really. Um, yeah, let us hear about this. Fantastic. Well, sh shall I kick off? Um, sure. it, essentially, it's a it's a full person authorship. It's a completely independent analysis. Um, we've actually see very little in the area of vaccines of independent analysis of work. Essentially, most of the science is, is paid for science these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. And conflicts of interest exist absolutely everywhere. There are revolving doors. So in essence, um, if is it um, possible, Rainer, to share the screen? Of course, yes. Uh, through a few slides. Um, that, that will help, I think, at this stage. Um, thank you. Um, so let me share this. Tell me, the, is that brought up the screen there? Yep. Okay. So um, in, in essence, um, a, a cooperative in southern England, um, which which was known as the Vax Control Group, you can find the website at controlgroup.coop. Um, they had decided that they did not want to exercise their um, informed consent for vaccination. Um, there was a, a significant group of people who um, were concerned about side effects, um, the, the lack of testing, and um, what they wanted to do was was ensure that people could identify themselves as part of the group that had made a, a, a considered decision to not be vaccinated through the use of identification cards. So in the slide you see up there, um, because it's multilingual and it's international, um, you'll see um, a Spanish version down on the, the, the right side. And essentially it says, um, uh, this person is is unvaccinated and do not vaccinate. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the ID cards have been very useful to gain entry to venues, even to travel um, internationally, um, often in conjunction with exemption forms. Um, but in addition to that, what the the website, the Vax Control um, Group web website has allowed is is um, a survey so it collects both baseline survey uh, data as well as ongoing monthly data mm -hmm. and while there are um, well over 300,000 people who've signed up around the world what we decided to do in an analysis they were very interested in a group such as ours and and um, 
uh, obviously Kat and myself um, and Dr. Naseeba Katrada and Christoph Plotter um, are all working with the World Council for Health. Um, I head up the, um, the I, I co-chair the Health and Humanity Committee together with Naseeba um, and Kat and, and Christoph are on the steering group um, of World Council for Health. So we, we were kind of ideally placed as doctors and scientists to um, evaluate the data. What we wanted to ensure is that the data set we were looking at was, was as comprehensive as possible. So we essentially um, have been looking in detail at the 18 and a half thousand people who have provided every single month since the start of the survey data in October 2021 um uh the eighteen and a half thousand people provided five months worth of data and you'll see in this cover slide um how they are represented you see the largest groups come from europe um 26.1 percent northern europe 10.6 western europe um 25 percent from america 27.2 from australasia um the rest are, are littered from um different different parts of the world um so um just by way of background, um, my own background, I, I am an ecologist, environmental scientist. I've been with uh, um, Imperial College for many years. I set up 20 years ago the Alliance for Natural Health International. Um, since COVID struck um, three years ago, we've been almost 24-7 involved with COVID. Um, and it was about um, a few months after the control group set up that we um, were kind of agreed to evaluate data when there was enough data and that's essentially what we're doing here. In terms of the the overall evidence base, you will know very well that there is a real mixture of data. So this allows people to cherry pick pretty much whatever data they want. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll still see, uh, you know, from the, the state that that um, Kat lives in, and and works in, you'll see that they are still arguing, often using old data, that um, you're eight times more likely to test positive for COVID-19 and 22 times more likely to die of COVID-19 associated illness um, if you are not vaccinated. Now, the way in which this generally works is by using old data. We are always dealing with moving goalposts, shifting goalposts, because we have different numbers of people and age groups of people that are being both impacted by the genetic vaccines and people who are acquiring different strains, immunity to different strains um, at different times um, uh, of naturally acquired infection. And that is creating a, a, a very much a changing picture. So we really, if we're gonna make decisions today on policy, they have to be made on recent data and what's happening with Omicron at the moment, and particularly BA4, BA5, which are the current, you know, most prolific um, circulating variants. Um, you also see a lot of data. Here are two examples from the Lancet, from um, also from uh, medical archives, showing that there are no difference between outcomes amongst um, vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And obviously, if you look at the work of Professor Norman Fenton and Martin Neal from Queen Mary um, College, University of London, you'll see that um, when you start looking at data sets like the UK, or I've just um, written a piece a um, couple of days ago looking at the um, New South Wales data in Australia, 
um, you can see that there is um, some very confusing data that has to have arisen through miscategorization of outcomes amongst those who are recently vaccinated being apportioned to those who are considered so-called unvaccinated. Um, and um, these are these are two uh, research papers. They can't even make their way into the journals, but um, 12th of January, 3rd of March, um, really interesting papers. So essentially what, what we've done is in terms of the design of, of this um, analysis, and we're calling it a survey rather than a study because it is technically not a prospective cohort or observational study because it is just survey data. It's been designed by people who are essentially non-scientists. There are a number of um, uh, you know, questions in it that, that um, may be slightly ambiguous. So we've um, effectively responded and analyzed those questions that we believe have particular value. Um, and um, and, and as, as you can see, the data are anonymized so that even the control group cooperative who's provided us with the raw data um, cannot apportion any of the outcomes to individuals. And it's interesting that um, Kat, Kat and I and many others have been in, in Brazil recently in Aguasso Falls for the um, Medicos Pela Vida, the Doctors for Life conference. And um, there's great interest in this particular project in South America, but many of the doctors, there are now 18,000 um, doctors who are members of Medicos Pela Vida. They've been told there's basically people infiltrating the information that the data, this is just a data harvesting exercise set up by the Pfizer's and Moderna's of this world which has been very off-putting for people. And when we were able to correct that information, people have been very much more interested in, in getting on board with it. Um, mm -hmm. We've now conducted the independent analysis. You can see the authorship in the left corner there. Um, uh, as soon as we released it on ResearchGate, it made it straight into the mainstream media in the UK. The Daily Mail covered it. Um, a number of experts without having clearly having read any of the analysis at all um, decided to can it. But as you know, any publicity is often good publicity, but it did cause ResearchGate to pull it immediately. We were able to put it up on Authorear, another preprint server. And, um, and then the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice and Research approached us and said, look, we love this paper. Please, can you submit it to us in slightly abbreviated form? And um, just as of the last two or three days, the paper has been accepted for publication. It's just a matter of days before we're going to be able to release that. So, um, and, and this is a journal that has been set up in response to the completely skewed system of science that we're all exposed to, in which almost no one can publish anything that is contrary to the vaccine narrative. So people like Stephanie Seneff, James Lyons-Weiler um, and, and John Oller have been behind setting up IJVTPR. So it's going to be a really interesting journal mm -hmm. for good quality research. Um, um, and I want to just briefly take you through some of the, some of the overall results. The, the uh, population that have come on board, 18,500 in this cohort are 
um, skewed towards the middle ages and slightly towards the female gender, right? About 60% of people are, 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 are female. Um, very few of them are true anti-vaxxers in the sense that most of them have been exposed to childhood vaccines. Um, the vast majority do not do routine COVID testing because they have concerns about PCR, as you may be very familiar okay. with. So they, they test mainly when they have symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, we see a very low infant incidence of, of COVID um, with, with mild symptoms. Um, here you can see the, the four bars. The, the first bar is actually no symptoms. So the few people who have tested positive and are truly asymptomatic, then you'll have the majority that are um, mild symptoms um, and only very few um, uh, that around about five or 600 of the 18,000 that had severe disease. Um, most importantly, hospitalization rates, in other words, the burden on the medical system, the very thing that the mm. vaccines um, are, are purported to protect against, um, this cohort provides a very low burden, around about 0.4% of the total cohort found themselves hospitalized, both either as inpatients or as outpatients. Um, about 70% of them were taking routine um, high dose nutrients, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc and quercetin in that order. And a large group were also taking ivermectin and or hydroxychloroquine. So the degree of self-care in this population is very high. And this particular cohort may or may not be representative of other unvaccinated populations. It's likely that it is a particularly health conscious cohort. Um, what we then found in terms of a more negative finding is that the mental health burden was high, probably on par with, with that of the wider community. Um, and um, from, the res from other results that we'll look at in a, in a moment, um, that is likely to have arisen from the stigmatization, the victimization, and the discrimination, particularly in the workplace that they've faced. Um, another anomalous finding is the fact that this unvaccinated cohort suffered um, a fairly high degree of bleeding abnormalities, particularly obviously amongst women, um, particularly in terms of menstrual disturbances. And um, while some of that could have been the result of SARS-CoV-2 infection that I mentioned was already quite low, it's likely that another part of it was contributed to by the fact that a large majority of um, people were sharing houses with people who were, or even beds with people who were vaccinated. So this issue of spikopathy of, of spike protein toxicity could have played a part in that. So we're talking um, about shedding, right? Well, it's not truly shedding. I, I think we need to be clear on, on terminology here. Um, when we talk about viral shedding, shedding is normally viral shedding, where you're shedding viral particles that have the ability to replicate in the host. Mm. Um, the idea of, of releasing spike protein, um, we have to, when we're dealing with a, a new virus and, and, and a new technology that is used to counter that virus that involves a synthetic spike protein that contains uh, a new to nature assortment of proteins, nucleotides and nucleosides, 
um, we, we have to also develop a new language. And the, the language I think many of us are coming to, to refer to this um, contagion caused by the release of spike protein is spikeopathy. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's spike protein toxicity. Um, so we found here that, that when you look at mask wearing, interestingly, the people who never wore masks also had the lowest COVID incidence. Um, and um, on job losses, a very disturbing situation, probably no great surprise that almost 30%. So Australia was the highest rate of job losses as a result of vaccination status and, and nearly 30% of all the participants um, in Australia have lost their jobs because of the um, that decision. You may have heard just in the last couple of days, um, Queensland has decided that it's going to force um, police officers to receive a fourth jab. Again, no data to support it at all. And these police officers will lose their jobs um, if, they, if they don't uh, roll their sleeves up. Um, and, um, and finally, there is also um, a lot of evidence of um, victimization by society and by peers, um, you know, as well as by the state. Um, all of that contributing to, uh, you know, tensions and obviously contributing to, to this mental health burden. So, um, you know, conclusions are really that self-care is, is high, severe disease hospitalization is low, mental health bleeding abnormalities probably on par with, with the rest of the population, but definitely discrimination. And of course, um, there, there is no justification for that. Um, Gunter Kamp's paper here on the right-hand side in The Lancet, looking um, at the data um, from even November 2021, says if you look at the data and you take a snapshot then, there was no data to suggest that there should be any stigmatization of the unvaccination of the unvaccinated populations, and uh, and, and obviously that is contributing to mental health burdens. So um, I know that Kat's going to talk uh, more on this. You know these fundamental principles of bioethics um, have been thrown to the wind. Um, so you know autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Um, none of them are happening unless you can interpret justice as being, um, you know, supporting the Gabby Alliance approach, which is to make sure that you can ensure everyone has equal access to, to vaccines, certainly not equal access to healthcare. Um, so um, that's a major concern. And, and finally, you know, looking to where these kind of findings lead us, um, first of all, it suggests that self-care and empowered self-care is one of the most effective strategies we could use to take the burden off of health systems. Um, secondly, we need to ensure that the underlying principles of, um, of, of medical bioethics are actually maintained. Um, thirdly, we, we do need proper prospective observational studies um, that include evaluating the controls against populations that have received different doses of vaccines. Um, the New South Wales Australian data now is some of the most robust that we have where we can start to see what appears to be a definitive dose response. In other words, the people who've had four plus jabs are performing around about 100 times worse in terms of hospitalization rates compared with people who are unvaccinated. That 
even though that's noisy data and can have a number of confounders in it, it is hugely significant because we're talking two orders of magnitude. Um, and finally, it's also um, a, a big wake-up call that we need to change the, the way that we do healthcare um, and we need to build parallel systems um, uh, of community-based healthcare. So um, essentially, that's where we're at. I'm, I'm going to finish at that point um, and open up to, to Kat. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. So, um, you know, from my standpoint, when I was looking at this data and things like that, what struck me is um, these uh, people just took ownership for their own lives. They decided to look at the you know, risk assessment. Do I actually get this uh, new product or do I try to do the best I can with the lifestyle, with taking vitamins? If I get sick, there are certain things that, that you do. And data is very clear. This uh, population did extremely well just by doing uh, natural things. You know, they opted out of the experiment. They relied on their natural immunity, self-care with supplements, taking care of themselves when they're sick, whether it was lifestyle, hydration, or whatever. And uh, that's something that we lost in this um, pandemic era. Uh, we, we are relying a little bit too much on uh, vaccinating our way out of something that should never be done. Something and see, that may not even exist. Yes. So <laughs> the, the important thing is that people need to take care ownership of their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, really, if you look at the data that just this self-survey exposed, it really, it's quite stunning and it's clear that um, doing what they've done is really the way to go and relying on the uh, early treatment. Some of them chose to do ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, some of them just did supplements, but they all did really well. The other thing that was very, kind of astonishing to me is the um, amount of um, discrimination against people who actually made a decision to participate in their own health. And the fact some of them have lost their jobs, have been um, exposed to harassment and things like that. I think that's kind of that aspect of mental health that was affected in their population uh, at the same level. And um, it cannot be clearer than this. It really just comes down to that. Can, can I just throw in that in terms of this may be relevant for, for you, um, Rainer and Vivian, the, the groups that, that lost their jobs at the highest rate, the professions that were most impacted by job losses were teachers and nurses. Mm -hmm. Teachers and nurses. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, same in Germany, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Right. Okay. So this is a global phenomenon, but, yes. but, but there is no consideration of, I mean, it's the same thing as the Queensland police officers now being losing their jobs if they don't have their fourth jab with no data to support it. Mm -hmm. And then we start to lose the enforcement services. Um, quite remarkable how little uh, respect there is for, for those essential services. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I mean, here, obviously, the, there's a, a lot of uh, vaccination pressure in the, the healthcare system. 
So you have to be vaccinated or I mean, if you're not vaccinated, you are reported to the health um, authorities and then they can decide whether you have to be um, vaccinated or not. You know, that's why I understand, of course, that a lot of the people working there, like nurses, doctors, decide not to be in that system anymore if they don't want to get vaccinated. And for the teachers, I can also, well, I mean, understand that sometimes, I mean, if they uh, want to quit themselves because they just don't want to be part of torturing the children. But also, if you then don't play along, there's, I'm sure, enough, a lot of pressure from your colleagues and other people, maybe even their parents, to get you out of the system because you don't want to play along. So, yeah, I, I think one of, one of the big problems we have with the uh, approach that the authorities are using is that they're now using historic data. You know, they, they have to be using current data. There is no point drawing up data that was linked to the Alpha variant or the Delta variant or even BA1, BA2 variants of Omicron when we're actually dealing with BA4, BA5. By the time the updates come, we will see this massive pressure that develops as we move into the northern hemisphere, um, uh, autumn and, and, and winter, because Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca and the rest of them have the updates, the Omicron updates, the first time we've seen a significant update in terms of the, the antigen. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a new opportunity to sell vaccines. It's also a new opportunity to uh, change one of the important parameters of the experiment which is to put a new antigen into the system. And of course, it is also a weapon that can be used against anyone that says, you know, you're using an out-of-date antigen. You, you're basing this on the Wuhan strain, which hasn't been around for many, many months now. And they say, don't worry. The wonderful thing about um, mRNA technology is that unlike attenuated, you know, viral vaccines, we, we can update the vaccines quickly and look, we've done it now. Wait and see how effective these are going to be. The, the, the risk is, of course, by the time they come out, as soon as you provide, as Heer van der Bosch has, has been making so clear, if you pr provide that population-wide pressure, selection pressure, uh, on the host and then on the virus, you increase the chance of producing new mutations. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know that, that this particular beta um from where, wherever it originated, does have quite a high tendency to, to mutate. Um, and it certainly mutates even more rapidly under selection pressure. Um, and the, the issue of looking at the evolutionary pressures is something that has not come into any of the, you know, official dialogue or narrative. Um, and yet it's a it's an absolute key factor. Well, it and seems, what, I'm sorry, was, go ahead. I was going to bring up, you know, I testified at the FDA hearing for the um, uh, freedom, uh, the future framework. I keep on calling it freedom, but it's opposite. Future framework. Um, and interestingly, you know, from now on, they can just give us these new um, vaccines that don't have to do any trials on and The ones that mm. they're proposing to bring in are going to be extinct variants. Mm. So now we're going to, like uh, Rob was uh, suggesting, we're going to be having a new uh, injection with extinct variant. So what is that going to do to uh, this new population? The other thing I wanted to bring up, um, not everything is doom and gloom. I always like to look at the good things, but the case in Florence, Firenze, yes. judge yeah. actually um, 
sided with the psychologists that they cannot mandate it for a job. Yes. And you, know, uh, you didn't say this in my bio, but one interesting thing is I grew up in Yugoslavia and communism. So for me, when it comes to these uh, new products and different things, it's always about the mandate. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, our governments, our uh, jobs, our employers are mandating something so that you can provide food for your family needs to be taken very seriously. And there is no mm. country in the world that currently can say that we are free when something like that can happen and it's happening. Yeah, this is what members of the of the European Parliament who are from uh, the former or the Eastern European countries, including Croatia um, and Serbia. That's what they told us. You don't understand what's going on because you're three generations away from totalitarianism. We remember precisely how it is, and that's why we don't trust our own governments. We're much better prepared to fight back, and that's probably true. This explains what's going on. But, you know, I have come to the conclusion, after everything we've seen and heard, that the problem is not the virus. The problem is the so-called vaccines. Um, and I am even close to coming to another conclusion, and that is I really have very, very serious doubts that this virus, this alleged novel coronavirus, has ever been um, isolated properly. I, I think it, there is a very distinct possibility that we're, all we're seeing is a gigantic illusion that was created by um, by hundreds and hundreds of psychologists, psychiatrists, and sociologists in order to put us in panic mode. Maybe even the game of function experiments or part of the, these experiments serve that purpose, to get everyone in panic mode to believe that there's something novel out there which is extremely dangerous. The only thing I can see that's really dangerous is the so-called vaccines. That's, that's it. But we'll find out. We will find out. It's, I mean, obviously, one of, one of the ways of looking at, um, at that kind of impact is by looking at excess mortality data, and, yeah. and we're doing that routinely. Yeah. Um, there, there, there are some, if you look at the Euromomo data, mm -hmm. there, there is a disturbing trend, um, and ironically, that disturbing trend is in a very young age group, um, not 40-year-olds. Um, which which actually have not um, been the primary groups that have been vaccinated, um, and um, so that there are there are a wide range of issues. Obviously, one of the reasons that that we could be seeing a spike there is because healthcare has not been functioning as normal. So what you see is a spike in that age group because normally relatively few naught to fourteen year olds in the industrialized world. We've got 29 countries or so in Euromomo. So we have a low rate of mortality in that age group. We have high mortality in the old age groups. So if something goes untoward, we we can see it. And the very fact that we have um, the 0 to 14 year olds consistently in 2021 dying at a much greater rate when there was so much concentration on the vaccines, when there was so much focus on one disease, and there was a failure to look at other diseases, we started killing young people. Exactly. I mean, that, yeah, that, should, that should be front page news, yes. but it's been thrown under the carpet. Um, so, uh, and I think the other point in response to, to your comment, Reimer, is that the, we, we are, we have been moving over the last two decades or so into 
the world of molecular biology when it comes to looking at um, taxonomy, not just of viruses, but of all pathogens, all microbes, and all forms of life. Um, and, and what this facilitates is this transition to a world in which we start you know, determining everything based on, on molecular biology, based on, on genomics, which of course, um, you know, is a huge assumption to make. I mean, we, 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 uh, if, you, if you look at the, the development of pharmacogenomics after the Human, human Genome Project um, was completed, pharma thought that what they could do is by understanding individual genomes, they could tailor medicines now, it failed spectacularly. Why did it fail spectacularly? Because epigenetics played a role. The environment has such a major impact on the expression of genes. It leaves epigenetic marks, histone modification, methylation, that results in permanent changes to where those genes are expressed and is even passed down the generations. Um, and. Um, and so we're essentially playing with a system that we only barely understand. And we also assume that molecular biology is the last frontier. So from, you know, one of the very disturbing things for anyone who understands something about genetics is the idea that we can start to change the way uh, the genome of a beta coronavirus functions by making it more persistent, changing the way in which the folding of the spike that provides access to the host occurs. So the, you know, by, by substituting um, the, put, putting in the, the pseudouridine into the, into the structure so that we're forcing the human body now to produce a protein that is, doesn't even exist in nature. In fact, it's producing a protein that has a patent on it that also has a two additional protein, uh, proline um, uh, amino acids in it to ensure that that spike is held firmly up. That means that we're entering, you know, as Kat said, this, this world of experimentation and to do it on everyone. And now having the FDA determine that they can do it on very young children is, you know, from, from six months through to four or five years of age is astonishing, particularly when then that group has shown very clear evidence that it has the strongest innate immunity. Um, and now we have emerging evidence that the vaccines are eroding that very immunity. And we have no idea what the long-term impacts on fertility or reproductive toxicity are going to be. So, um, you know, I think it's, a, it's, it, it's definitely, there is a massive problem about creating a kind of myopia on a, 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 a viral pathogen um, and of course, I think that's one of the reasons that we're likely to see more publicity about anything from monkeypox through to Marburg, you know, keep people focused on this idea of an existential threat, while at the same time, um, there is more and more opportunities to sequence each and every one of the people on the planet by saying, guys, the mechanism here is genomic sequencing, that's how we're going to keep you safe but actually you're harvesting a huge amount of data from people because if you can understand people's book of life, their genome, you can start to control them. And um, so we're, we're moving into this realm of gene editing. There's no doubt that mRNA technology is not something that's just for 
finding pathogens, the pharmaceutical industry see the mRNA platform as the biggest future platform for the whole of medicine. So you can essentially turn the human body into a pharmaceutical factory, produce whatever protein signaling compound that you want. You just give the body instructions and off it goes. Yeah, but it doesn't work. It, it's so untested and it's yeah. so dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, and we're obviously seeing the tip of the iceberg at the moment. Yeah. So can I ask you, like these 0 to uh, 14 year olds? I mean, this this idea that maybe they uh, more of them died because of insufficient um, medical support. I mean, could it also be that maybe uh, we had a lot of still a lot of people like vaccinating their children in that that age group, even though it was not like or like was in transition, if it was possible or not. And then um, you know that uh, maybe there's a, a just a very strong reaction, like an over over a proportional reaction in that age group to the vaccine ingredients? Yeah, the, the, look, there's no doubt that, that as you move to ever younger age groups, because you see a, a more and more lively immune system, the risk of adverse events increases. Mm. Um, but, but what we do know is that there was a trend during 2021 to move vaccination pressure from older populations to younger populations so we would have expected to see an excess mortality in that age group increasing during the course of the year um, um, actually it, it was maintained pretty much throughout the year um, and um, so so yes i mean it's they're likely to be a whole range of different factors i mean we, we see in the new south wales data the last seven weeks of new mm -hmm. south wales data um, this very, very alarming trend for increasing hospitalization um, that is absolutely proportionate to the number of doses between, you know, least at zero doses, then at one, two, three, four, and four plus doses, it goes up and up to the point that the extreme mm -hmm. ends of this between unvaccinated and those with four plus um, doses of the vaccines we're looking at a hundredfold increase in hospitalization rate. Now, again, let's recognize that the vaccines are unlikely to be solely responsible for that um, morbidity. Another factor that will come into play is that the people who elect to have four plus vaccines are gonna be also those viewed as more vulnerable. It's going to be the older populations that are more risk of ending up in hospital, because remember, this is hospitalization data with COVID. But what it shows unequivocally is the vaccines are not protecting them. Mm -hmm. If anything, they are harming them, but they're certainly not protecting them. So this public message that is going out saying, go and get protected or as we've seen amongst the 50 plus um, age group of police officers in Queensland, go and get your fourth jab or you'll lose your job is absolutely contrary to what the science is telling us, even the Australian science. This is um, this is the same thing's happening in Germany. I just uh, saw an interview of a, I think, former police officer who uh, he was interviewed by uh, one of the alternative media. And he explained the same thing, but he also explained that all of those police officers, I think 30% of the entire police force 
is on uh, sick leave right now because they, part of it is, of course, has to do with the, with the so-called vaccines, but part of it has to do with they don't want to be in this job anymore because they don't want to uh, harass or beat down on, on uh, demonstrators, for example. Um, and what he also says, and I think he's correct in mentioning this, if you continue to do this, that is, follow orders that you shouldn't that you shouldn't follow, you know, just like uh, during the Nuremberg trials when they came up with uh, crimes against humanity. If you continue to do this, you will be held liable personally. You can't hide behind anyone. But it's the same kind of pressure that they're using in order to break, really, the uh, police forces back and to bring them into line. Um, same kind of pressure, I think, all over the world. It's time for them to rise up. Because essentially that's so t tightly linked to totalitarianism. Yes. You, you need the military, you need the enforcement services to completely get in behind the narrative, however faulty that narrative might be, in order that you can control, first of all, them, because you need them to control yes. the masses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me, one of the important things is with the FDA approval in children, I have five, um, it's interesting watching we're about to start school in the next three to five weeks, depending which state you're in. And some states are starting to mandate vaccine in children. And there is nothing more criminal to me than that, because even according to CDC data in February of this year, 74.2% of children already have natural immunity. We do know that if you uh, vaccinate someone who already has immunity, there's going to be hyperimmune response. Yeah. They vaccinate children against something that they actually clear very easily on their own. Uh, the survival rate in children age group is 99.95 uh, to 99.98, depending what you look at. And you're giving them something that's all risk and no benefit. There is no, um, it's not clinically indicated, it's not medically necessary. And um, you know, they try to normalize these things. Uh, I read something, it was anonymous, so I don't have source for it, but uh, supposedly the nurse uh, had a seven-year-old uh, female with blood clots. Blood clots are not normal in children. Wow. Chest pain and shortness of breath for a 16-year-old boy is generally not normal, especially if you had a previous echoes that show that you don't have a, a, cardi a cardiomyopathy or something like that. So um, as parents, we have to stop accepting this new normal that they're trying to give us and push back. Mm -hmm. Good news from the United States is there just hasn't been a significant uptake in vaccines in children. But my fear is with the school starting, a lot of parents are going to feel pressure to do it. And we have no long-term safety data, none. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that lipid nanoparticles accumulate in ovaries. We know that semen uh, production goes down. So when I testified, you know, um, I went in knowing that my testimony probably is not going to make any difference. But I was really disappointed that the vote was 21 to 0 for these vaccine in children because there are some great testimonies there. And even some of their own experts asked very good questions that they did not answer. So um, it's disheartening to see that it doesn't matter. True science doesn't matter. No, it's just agenda. True science has been replaced by or with um, with scientism, as uh, Patrick Wood calls it. It's science for sale. 
it doesn't matter. They don't have any regard for the truth or reality. They're totally disconnected. The only thing they seem to be interested in is making as much money as possible. Not the people who are pulling the strings. They're just using money in order to bribe people, but especially the medical community. And I have some experience, it's, it's a long time ago, but I have some experience with uh, doctors at the university hospitals. I used to think they're just divas, but someone who really knows them says, no, they're not divas. They're ready to sell their souls to the devil as long as they make money. Yeah. That can be the situation, um, and, and I think a, a, a lot of um, primary care physicians um, that are working in the community are, are, are now realizing that, that all this talk about uh, becoming effectively a community hub in which you value the therapeutic relationship and the confidentiality of the doctor-patient relationship, all of that's been cast to the wind. Essentially, everything moves into the public domain. Um, you have uh, organizations like Microsoft and Apple and Alphabet just taking data, you know, on in order that they can compartmentalize you. And essentially, you've got the doctor now having to look over his or her shoulder at the institutions to say, what are you going to allow me to say exactly. in order so I can keep my job? Yeah. And that, that, that's why these principles, and, and Kat, Kat, please just say a few words about the oath of a medicus because it is so imperative. Kat, Kat and I are both involved with the bioethics committee of uh, Kat heads it up of, of World Council for Health, and we are developing new charters for um, medical bioethics now, both for clinical practice and for research. But you know, if there's one thing that can be done with this crisis is create an opportunity to say, guys, you have now strayed so far from the line of everything, even the major textbooks. Um, you know, we've seen it with Paul Marek in terms of who's authored some of the major textbooks on emergency medicine. Look how he's been treated. Now we see, you know, Beauchamp and Childress who've written the major textbooks on medical bioethics. All of those principles those four central principles that I touched on when I took you through my slides, um, all of them have been thrown to the wind, um, particularly in the last three years. So we've got to grasp hold. So Kat, can you just talk about your oath? I will. So I, I, you know, I looked at different oaths and to me, I always took that very, very seriously. I remember walking, walking across the graduation stage and my son was actually in my belly. I was pregnant with him. So with everything that's been happening, uh, I kept on trying to figure out how come my colleagues are not seeing the things that I'm seeing and, uh, you know, that like me are seeing. So I decided to write this out and, and Rob helped me uh, put it together. But uh, I'm, it was, uh, the name is Medicus because Medicus means a healer. We need to start really thinking about words, words matter. I'm just going to read your last three uh, points of that oath because they're really significant. So it says, um, I promise never to discriminate against those for whom I care, including on the basis of age, race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, religion or belief, political affiliation, sexual orientation or social standing. I promise that I will neither treat anyone nor carry out any research on any human being without the valid informed consent of the subject or the appropriate lawful protector thereof. I promise that I will never use my expertise or medical knowledge to violate human rights 
or civil liberties even under threat to myself. I make these promises solemnly, freely, and upon my honor. And I truly meant that. It has to be upon our honor because uh, the biggest crime for these past two years is the fact that we have totally disregarded our oath, the informed consent, which is one of the biggest ethical principles that we have as physicians. And um, no matter, and, and also we are totally disregarding this whole population of people who after they get the vaccine suffer. We're just saying there's nothing wrong with you. It's in your head, you have anxiety, um, you haven't slept well, but we don't wanna accept that this product has consequences and now we need to truly be healers and take ownership of it. You know, it, 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 that is such an important, uh, you know, series of principles, Kat. Um, what, one of the other points in terms of dealing with, say, the conversation around long COVID um, is that physicians for many, many years, particularly ones that were working more holistically, have been about these integrative physicians are the main ones who've been helping people with so-called post-viral syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome or, you know, myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's got a range of names, but it is nearly always triggered by a virus. And then the body is often there's some problems with mitochondria and you get this sort of long range sequelae that, that develop after that. Now, mainstream medicine has largely been saying for many years, this is a psychosomatic disease. Um, Coronavirus comes along and suddenly there's all this attention on long COVID. And um, essentially, if it is anything, it is, a, um, it is another form of post-viral syndrome. But the real clever part of it is it's also a mechanism by which you can completely mask vaccine injuries. Exactly. For the first time in history, we see that the particularly particular toxin that we're dealing with in relation to um, adverse events from infection is exactly the same as the remedy that we're delivering via the human body for treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not what, like we have a, a disease that's caused by bad lifestyle and we're using a completely separate drug. So type two diabetes caused by bad lifestyle, we deliver metformin which impacts you know, mTOR and a range of different complex metabolic systems in the body. We're dealing with the same product. So it allows, it facilitates the total masking of vaccine injury, which is, which is a very clever game to be playing. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have to keep on speaking out about it. Um, and uh, we've, we've, We've been expecting this. Uh, we kind of speculated for a couple of months or so um, that they're going to probably come up with um, with uh, uh, another disease. You mentioned Marburg, but we thought it would probably be AIDS or something because even because this is probably or in all likelihood, uh, V-AIDS, vaccine-induced um, uh, uh, AIDS, um, they're trying to make it look as though this is a new disease. That's why they pushed, I believe, that's why they pushed AIDS awareness in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, they introduced um, 
the um, HIV virus, both into the virus and the uh, vaccine, of course. And that's why I believe um, Moderna now has an EUA approval, emergency use approval uh, for, a, for an HIV uh, vaccine. Uh, but, you know, the expert on this uh, is Judy Mikovits, Dr. Judy Mikovits, and I've been talking to her a lot, and uh, she's going to be our main witness, our most important witness, because she has had personal interactions with those who are responsible in the United States, including Fauci. So, uh, and, and this is what she's saying. This is a replay of HIV AIDS. HIV probably did not cause AIDS. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing now, it's COVID is not causing what we're seeing. It's the, it's the treatment, it's the vaccines. But we have to be, we have to get more data on this. But this is what I gather from uh, talking to Judy, Judy Mikovic, Mikovic, sorry. Yeah, uh, look, I, I think the other, the other element, and I've obviously got huge respect for, for, for Judy, the, the, um, the reality is that um, the situation is very complex in yeah. terms of what the contributing factors are. So the difficulty when you're looking, you know, when you use science to try and underpin a legal position around causation, you know, it took the tobacco industry 30 years to be found out when it knew absolutely yeah. that smoking causes cancer. But, it, you know, the people working on the other side, 30 years to unpick all of that. What we're dealing here with is an infinitely more complex phenomenon mm -hmm. because um, the digital age, the disconnection, the fear, the chronic stress, the loss of jobs, the political instability, yeah. the breakdown of, of community, the breakdown of family structures, the breakdown of the medical and healthcare system, the breakdown of the education system, all of these different factors are putting pressure on people, making them less and less resilient. What we have is a crisis of low resilience. So in all of that noise, you know, we've got to try and pick out some of the key influences. That is something that, that, that you know, when we look at the interaction of, say, environmental chemicals, in 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 the world you know it, it takes years and years and years before you determine that actually pcbs or dioxins um are, are the are the main problem but um that that's what we have to do and and in order to do that you need to be doing a whole bunch of research and the more parameters you are measuring in your research the more expensive it becomes and essentially the system knows this so that they're trying to tie up who funds the research. So if you can't get your research funded, you can't do the work, you can't actually expose the, the, cause, the key causative agents behind it all. So, you know, we've got to work on all of that and change the way in which um, research is, is done and funded. Oh, yeah. Can I just yeah. make one more point? Um, when you look at this, it all started back with, you know, people, Croatians are saying and Serbians, you know, we, we really get it. This all started with propaganda of fear, isolation, and uh, numbness of the population to what's happening now. So every time they say something, instead of asking questions, we're saying, how high do you want me to jump? And, you know, the heat wave that's happening in Europe, 
we have 46 degrees in Texas. Granted, I do have AC, but 30 degrees, 29 degrees, those are type of summer temperatures. In Croatia, 33 during summer is all normal. All of a sudden, you have this map that's all red because that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to instigate and keep on this level of fear so high yeah. that, you know, I just read an article, there is antibiotic resistant bacteria that has formed and we're going to create a new vaccine for it. When have we vaccinated our way out of, out of things? So if everything that happens from now on, there's going to be a vaccine. It's still dealing with the root of the problem. And uh, the only way out of this is to empower people to take their lives back. That's yes. the only yes. way to get out of this. Absolutely. Or, or you could make Stephanie Semmeth the next uh, president of the United States. That would fix a lot. Stephanie, hi. Great to see you. <laughs> Unmute. Hi. <laughs> hi, Stephanie. Well, um, I think we can build on that, um, on, on your presentation, uh, Rob and, um, and uh, Katerina, because I know that the paper that we're probably going to be discussing, the paper that um, Stephanie co-authored, I used it uh, while over the last two and a half months in my presentation that I gave in the United States in numerous locations. Um, and it basically says that uh, there is a lot of evidence that shows that the so-called vaccines, at least the mRNA vaccines, um, cause immune suppression. They basically, I, this is layman's terms, of course, kill your immune system. So, uh, Robert and Katerina, I want to thank you very much for taking the time and uh, and telling us uh, about your findings. And I'm really glad that um, both of you are working on a parallel or on a new, on a replacement for the World Health Organization, which is, in my view, totally corrupted. We have to get rid of it. We have to dismantle it. Um, and I want to wish you both a uh, great weekend, uh, despite all the really bad news we're seeing. But it's not just bad news. There's also light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Uh, absolutely. So thank you so much indeed, Rhino and Vivian and, and Stephanie. Great to, say, to see you. Um, great to see you. Thank you all. Thanks so much. Bye. Take care. Um, Bye. Bye. Uh, Stephanie, let me quickly reintroduce you. I know that I've done this before, but um, maybe some of our viewers don't know who you are. You're a senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Um, you have published over 170 refereed ar uh, articles on various subjects related to the intersection of biology and computation. In recent years, you've been concentrating mainly on the relationship between nutrition and health. Uh, some of the books that you wrote are Toxic Leg Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment, Fat and Cholesterol Don't Cause Heart Attacks, and Statins Are Not the Solution, How to Prevent Autism, which is a major theme for Judy Mikovits as well, Expert Advice from Medical Professionals. Uh, recently, in June, you published a paper, the one that I just referred to, uh, together with Greg Nye, Anthony Makiriakopoulos and Peter McCullough by the title of, uh, title of Innate Immune Suppression by SARS-CoV-2 mRNA Vaccines. Um, uh, I know it's really early for you because this is, you, this is, this is uh, I, I don't know, close to 6, 6 a.m., right? Yeah. 
Right, you're oh, exactly out man. of phase. I'm even more grateful for uh, you taking the time. Now, one disclaimer, um, if I get up and leave, it has nothing to do with you. It just has to do with the fact that the German Bundesbahn, which is our train system, um, changed their schedule. And if I want to catch the train, because I have to join another Zoom conference and I have to be in a in a uh, where, where I have Wi-Fi, uh, so if I if I have if I get up, don't take this personal. I love Thank to you. talk to you, and I again I used your paper uh, when I gave these uh, nine or so uh, presentations. That's wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Okay, let's let's get down to the nitty gritty of this. I know this is oversimplification when I say that mRNA mRNA vaccines kill the immune system, but um, I'm not too far off the mark, am I? You are not. I think that's a, a big worry that I have, and I think every time they get a booster, they've knocked it down another notch, and so um, people are going to be very susceptible to everything, including cancer. I mean, it's cancer and uh, infections that they won't be able to control. And of course, infections includes COVID-19. So it's ironic that they're actually, I think, setting themselves back against COVID. Once the, they get those antibodies, the antibodies work for a short while, and then they're back to worse than zero, I think, uh, after a few months. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how, how this plays out in the future. But I have um, a lot of worries. And of course, now the United States is going to be uh, injecting these uh, and vaccines into, um, they already are, they've approved to, to six month old kids, you know, all the way down to six months old. It, it's just, I, I really think it's going to hurt the autism epidemic as well. And we're already seeing increased autism rates every year. And with the uh, damage I'm seeing to the, to the brain, I really have a great deal of worry about the children. So I do have a set of slides and should I just bring those up now? Yes, please. So you can see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, SARS-CoV-2 messenger RNA vaccines is the risk worth the benefit. And thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. In case people would like to, to have a copy of these slides for themselves, they can find them on my MIT webpage. Uh, this is a, uh, gives you the links, uh, both a PowerPoint uh, version and PDF, two slides per page. Mm -hmm. um, so here's an outline of my talk. I'm first gonna give an introduction. And then I'm going to talk about exosomes and neurodegeneration. Exosomes, I think, are central to the processes happening with these vaccines. You'll see that by the end of this talk. Uh, messenger RNA vaccines and heart disease. Uh, G quadruplexes, I really want to have a section on this. It's really complex science, but it's so fascinating and it's very poorly understood. But we know these are really, really important and that there's going to be an effect with these vaccines that we don't uh, understand. And then some other aspects and finally a summary. So introduction, um, of course, this is the paper. <laughs> I'm so pleased that they accepted this paper and they are continuing to keep it up despite pressure. So I really, uh, food and chemical toxicology, um, kudos to them <clears throat> for being willing to publish this. Uh, innate immune suppression by SARS-CoV-2 messenger RNA vaccines, the role of G-quadruplexes, exosomes, and microRNAs. <clears throat> and this will be basically the, the topic of my entire talk for the most part. And these are the authors. This is Anthony Kyriakopoulos, very difficult last name there. He's in Greece. He's really smart. And he, it's been wonderful for me to work with him. We're going to continue, by the way. This, these four are collaborating on other papers right now. Excellent. So in this paper, this is quoting from the paper, we present evidence that vaccination induces a profound impairment in type 1 interferon signaling, which has diverse adverse consequences to human health. 
And then continuing in the abstract, these disturbances <clears throat> potentially have a causal link to neurodegenerative disease, myocarditis, immune thrombocytopenia, Bell's palsy, liver disease, impaired adaptive immunity, impaired DNA damage response, and tumorigenesis. So that's quite a list. And today I'm going to mostly focus on these two, which I'm very concerned about heart disease and neurodegenerative disease. So this is just, probably you've heard a lot of this already, but I just want to review it because it's super important. These vaccines do not contain the, uh, the messenger RNA for the spike protein that the virus produces. It's a very different animal. And this is a picture of it at the top. It's been humanized. I think that's very important. It's got this five prime cap, five prime UTR, three prime UTR, long poly HL, all of these things are sourced from human uh, RNA molecules and specially picked to be ones that will resist breakdown. So they're trying to keep this RNA alive for as long as you can. And then, of course, all these methylcelluridines, all the uridines are replaced by this uh, non-natural, uh, you know, all these, uh, it has the wrong uridine basically in the code, which also um, protects, very much protects it from getting broken down by enzymes because they were very worried that the body would just attack the RNA before it got a chance to make protein. So they went overboard with making sure it would stick around. And they did a very good job, unfortunately. So it contains, it contains the genetic code to make the spike protein, but it contains it with a different sequence. And um, so, I've, so I've basically said this, it's incorporated into a lipid particle. So they also, of course, add stuff to it. And this lipid particle has cholesterol and uh, phospholipids and, and then polyethylene glycol, which is also, uh, you know, something that could be toxic and is causing anaphylactic shock um, in, in certain people. That helps, of course, to stabilize it as well. And then there's this synthetic ionizable cationic lipid, which I think is very interesting and also an unknown. Uh, known, these kinds of things are known to be toxic, but they haven't really evaluated this one adequately to see exactly what it does but you can assume that it's gonna mess up the cell membrane and also mess up the blood. And I'll get to that in a moment. The humanized mRNA is a stealth sentry system for massive production of spike protein. That's the main point. It makes much more than the virus makes in a hurry. The cell is overwhelmed with the spike protein that it's making and it can't stop doing it. So the cationic lipid, I'm getting more and more interested in this cationic lipid. Um, so it, as I said, it's a cationic positively charged lipid. It's important for causing the mRNA to get released from the endosome as it's taken in and then to start making spike protein. Um, and so he, this experiment involved this cationic lipid um, hooked up with a polycytosine messenger RNA. So this is just a junk message RNA just to see what the lipid itself does. And they showed that in the mice, no matter how you delivered it, it caused... Uh, in preclinical studies, it caused inflammation and leukocyte, this is white blood cell infiltration, activation of all these inflammatory pathways, secretion of a diverse pool of inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. So in other words, it made a very good, strong initial immune response, which is what they need to get the immune cells to draw attention to the muscle to cope with this situation. They, they need to have an adjuvant, and this works great as an adjuvant, but is also toxic. And so this is very important when it's released into the vasculature by the vaccine transfected cells it would be predicted to cause a drop in zeta potential because it's positively charged. And that can cause thrombosis. It can cause really bad problems with the red blood cell circulation when the zeta potential is too low. So exosomes and neurodegeneration, this is a big topic for me. I really have focused on this. Um, and this is, again, again, this is from an earlier paper that Greg and I, there were two of those authors collaborated. He and I have been collaborating for a long time on various papers. And we wrote this paper published last year in May. Um, where we showed, uh, one of the things we showed was a Parkinson's connection. And so, and I know a lot about Parkinson's disease because I had been studying it before. It's an interesting disease. It often begins in the gut 
and it's a reaction to prion-like proteins that are produced by pathogens in the gut. The immune cells come in, they take up those proteins, they carry them into the spleen, and then they, uh, they start um, releasing exosomes containing those toxic proteins. And I think this is exactly what's happening in this case. The spike protein is a prion-like protein. It goes into the muscle, but the immune cells carry it into the spleen. That's been shown in studies, tracer studies. The spleen, among the organs, the spleen has had the highest levels uh, of the uh, message RNA um, of all the among the organs. Of course, it goes into the lymph system mainly, but it does hit the spleen hard. And the spleen is where they're developing those antibodies, so it's important for it to go into the spleen. They're happy about that, but it's a dangerous place for it to be because these immune cells in, in germinal centers in the spleen they're very stressed because they're making all the spike protein. They package it up into exosomes and they release it, and those exosomes travel very well along nerve fibers, so they're going up the vagus nerve to the brainstem nuclei, and then they're causing inflammation everywhere they go. And then the substantia nigris right there, that's this center that's associated with Parkinson's disease, and they have those ACE2 receptors, and so that uh, picks up the, uh, the, the protein and causes um, injury. Um, so exosomes are very, very interesting, and I've been really doing a deep dive into them recently. And this is a nice picture from the paper where they show a donor cell here releasing these exosomes. And these exosomes are really complicated beasts. They're, they're little lipid particles, so they could contain all kinds of stuff. You can see some of these things over here. Uh, microRNAs, uh, regular RNA, messenger RNA, uh, proteins, lipids, all kinds of things. And they're really a communication system for the cell. So the donor cell releases it. It can go all over the body. This could be a micro... An, um, an immune cell in the spleen, and this could be a neuron in the brain. And so the, they travel up the spinal cord, go to the brain, and then they can get picked up by multiple ways. And that's important because endocytosis is the, is, a, is the main way that the mRNA gets in, has to go through the endosome, can go to the lysosome, and can get broken down. So that's another thing they were worried about. They want it to be released before it goes to the lysosome. And those um, cationic lipids play a role in that. But with the exosomes, they can go straight in to the cytoplasm through multiple methods. And so that's important because they bypass the, um, the lysosome altogether, and therefore they can get in and start making protein right away if they contain message RNA. So this is a paper that shows that, in fact, uh, spike protein is released in exosomes in response to the, virus, to the vaccine, and it helps with making antibodies. So they showed, here's some quotes from the paper, our results demonstrated the induction of circulating exosomes carrying the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein by day 14. Mm -hmm. And this is circulating in the blood. I think they're going up the spinal cord before that. We propose a mechanism by which the immune response is developed during the immunization of mice requires binding of exosomes with mice antigen-presenting cells. Um, and, and that's also important. The exosomes are helping to facilitate um, the development of antibodies. And that's actually been shown in other papers as well, that um, exosomes released by the B cells uh, are sent to the T cells in the spleen. And this uh, allows the T cells to start proliferating and producing the specific um, antibody response that's needed uh, in response to the vaccine. So the, uh, these exosomes are important, important process of the, of the uh, important part of the process by which the antib antibodies are acquired. It's also of interest that such an immunization strategy results in increased frequency of splenic lymphocytes. So that's immune cells in the spleen secreting. And these things, if interferon gamma, and TNF-alpha are indicators of the uh, inflammatory response. So you produce an inflammatory response in the spleen in response to e exosomes produced by cells that are exposed to the uh, vaccine. So this is a table from our paper. We have seven such tables in the paper uh, showing uh, analyses from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in the United States. 
Um, and each of them is on a different topic. This one is showing the vagus nerve connection. And I, I am really struck by this. And this is looking at the year 2021. And it's uh, all the vaccines that were administered in 2021 reports in the VAERS database, what percentage of them were, uh, were COVID vaccines uh, for these various symptoms here. And I have these all listed. These are all connected to either vagus nerve inflammation or the inflammation of other nerves, mm -hmm. such as the auditory nerve, the facial nerve, um, this is going to be the transgeminal nerve, you know, and then you have uh, indications of um, the vagus nerve, even influencing the lung. So it's just basically all of these are vagus, are, are nerve inflammation indicators, all of these conditions. This is, you know, fainting and, uh, fainting and shortness of breath and, and arrhythmia problems in the heart, uh, unable to, to uh, talking difficulties and difficulty swallowing all these different conditions. And these are the counts for the events that showed up in the various database. And of course, it's way underrepresented compared to what's actually happening. Altogether, over 200,000 counts um, for the uh, COVID vaccines. And altogether, 97% of the events where these things were occurring were COVID-19 vaccines. And that's way, way more than the percentage of COVID vaccines to other vaccines that were delivered. And I just want to point out this anosmia, which is quite interesting. This is a loss as well. Very unique to this vaccine, 99.5% loss of cases. And of course, this is something the virus itself causes. And it indicates that that spike protein is traveling from the muscle, arm muscle, to the nose. So you can see that it's not staying in the arm muscle. It's causing trouble in the brain. Um, and that's just a very strong, obvious indicator of that. So, so this is interesting. mRNA transfer to other cells via exosomes. Um, lipid nanoparticles containing messenger RNA coding for a specific protein. In this case, this was done in 2019 before COVID, and they used erythropoietin, which is a human uh, protein, a code for that in, contained in messenger RNA vaccines. And they said they're taken up by cells at the injection site, repackaged into endosomal vesicles, and then released into the circulation exosomes. This is exactly what I'm saying for the, uh, for the mRNA vaccines. And they're showing here, administrating the vaccine, and they're showing the source, you know, the, the, the cell that's producing the exosomes and then the cell here that's receiving them. And they're pointing out that here it's coming into endocytosis. The actual lipid particle is coming into endocytosis and it could go into the uh, lysosome and get degraded. Whereas here, the uptake can be directly across the membrane. It doesn't end up in the lysosome, goes straight into the cytoplasm and can start making protein right away in the recipient cell of the exosome. And then it's very interesting that, um, now this is messenger RNA, I wanna make that point. It's not spike protein, it's messenger RNA to make spike protein, which is super, super important. And it's interesting that it, they observed that this ionizable cationic lipid was included in these exosomes at a one-to-one -one ratio with the nucleotides. So they, they're, they're balancing the negative charge of the nucleotides with that cationic lipid, shipping the thing out as exosomes. And then the, the cells that take it up can actually make protein from the mRNA that they receive through the exosomes. So this is a way for the messenger RNA in the vaccine to get everywhere in the body. And so because of their small size, they can escape from rapid phagocytosis, steadily carry and deliver RNA into circulation, passing through the vascular endothelium to the target cell. So it can go everywhere to the in the body, carrying not just the protein, but the messenger RNA itself and delivering it to another cell, which can then start also making spike protein. And here's some more quotes from that paper when mRNA is delivered via these lipid nanoparticles. Um, the, the particles alone may not deliver the messenger RNA to all the cells that express the protein. Part of the RNA delivery may be achieved by, via these endo extracellular vesicles, which is exosomes. 
secreted by the cells that, are, that internalize the lipid nanoparticles. And most importantly, these endo-EVs protect exogenous message RNA during in vivo transport to organs. So those uh, exosomes are very good at keeping the RNA safe. Mm -hmm. That's sort of their point. They know how to deliver messenger RNA from one cell to another. It's something there, it's a skill they have. And so they're gonna use it for this particular messenger RNA that's gonna communicate, uh, deliver this, the, uh, the capability of making the spike protein to all the cells in the body. And so specifically to the cytoplasm, that's an important point. SARS-CoV-2 spike activates human microglia in the brain via exosomes loaded with microRNAs. So this is a really important paper that I, I came across and I was really, this was a central uh, piece of the story for our uh, paper. That's our first paper. SARS-CoV-2 spike transfected cells release a significant amount of exosomes loaded with microRNAs such as MIR-148A and MIR-590. And these have interesting effects in terms of disrupting uh, type 1 interferon. Um, so they get internalized by human microglia in the brain, produced by immune cells, internalized by immune cells in the brain, microglia. And then they collaborate to suppress the response to type 1 interferon. And these results uncover a bystander pathway for, of SARS-CoV-2 mediated central nervous system damage through hyperactivation of human microglia. So they're proposing the disease, but this, it works just as well for the vaccine, probably better actually. So type 1 interferon is critical. This plays an important role in the initial battle against pathogens and in keeping cancer in check. And the microRNAs released by the transfected immune cells within the exosomes, along with the spike protein, suppress type 1 interferon response. And so this results in reduced levels of CD8 plus killer T cells, which are important, of course, for clearing the virus, and increases risk to other infections and cancers. And so there's been a recent preprint study that kind of verified that this is going on experimentally, where they looked at the response to the vaccine versus the response to the virus. And they saw that, um, that the virus induced a robust CD8 plus cytotoxic T cell response, uh, but that which was largely absent following vaccination. And so a reduced type 1 interferon response is associated with severe COVID-19 disease. Uh, is COVID-19 a perfect storm for Parkinson's disease? This is a paper that was published um, pointing out the loss of smell, which is such a characteristic feature of this particular disease and is also a very common early symptom of Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. Um, and then pointing out that this virus is very good at gaining access along the brain nerve fibers, but so is the spike protein when you do it through the exosomes and traveling along, they mentioned the olfactory nerve and also the vagus nerve, which is which, which I've centered on with respect to this transport from the spleen. And neuroinvasion of SARS-CoV-2 could upregulate alpha-synuclein. This is the protein that misfolds in association with, um, with Parkinson's disease. And then uh, dopaminergic uh, neurons in the substantia nigra, they express high levels of this H2 receptor, so they're very susceptible to uh, the uptake of the spike protein via the ACE2 receptors. Um, so here's another paper that shows that these proteins are prion-like proteins in their behavior, the, the, uh, the spike proteins are prion-like protein. Uh, it interacts with this alpha-synuclein and it induces the formation of these Lewy bodies that are characteristic of, of Parkinson's disease. So those are clumps of proteins that accumulate in the brain in association with Parkinson's. And the spike protein uh, causes the cells in the brain to make more of it. And that's a very classic effect of a prion-like protein. Um, and then, yes. Keep listening. 
on my cell phone. So okay. don't, don't let me interrupt you. I'm really interested, and I know this is going to be extremely interesting for our viewers, especially when we summarize this. Thank yeah, you, Stephanie. Well, but don't, don't take this personal. Thank you. I won't. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> aggregation of alpha synuclein into Lewy bodies was increased after spike protein exposure, and that's a classic prion-like behavior. And then by confirming that the proteins directly interact with alpha synuclein, our study offers new insights into the mechanism underlying the development of Parkinson's disease on the background of COVID-19. So this is explaining Parkinson's connected to COVID, but again, also Parkinson's connected to the vaccines. Now, this was an amazing paper, Professor Luc Montagnier, who uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, discoverer of the uh, HIV virus, uh, for, unfortunately passed away uh, recently, uh, but he had, before he, he left us, he was, he co-authored this paper, uh, 26 people, they, they found 26 people who had developed symptoms of COVID, of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is the human version of mild cow. And they all developed it within one month of their second vaccine. So there's something about the second vaccine, maybe the response of the antibodies that were produced by the first one, somehow triggers this um, this disease. And they it was very debilitating and very accelerated. And so many of them were dead within three months. All of them are now dead. So this is very scary. And I, I've been getting lots of email from people who are sharing with me the tragedies of their own personal stories and stories of their friends and loved ones along the area of neurodegenerative diseases. So mRNA vaccines and heart disease, how the mRNA vaccines cause heart disease. Uh, stressed immune cells release exosomes containing microRNAs that signal to tissue cells and can induce an inflammatory response. And so in, in the case of heart disease, there's a particular microRNA-155 that can be singled out. This one actually plays an important role in facilitating the development of the antibodies uh, in the spleen. And so it's important to be um, to be released in exosomes in order to make the antibody response work. But unfortunately, it also has major effects on the heart. Um, the spike protein S1 subunit detaches and becomes free to bind the ACE2 receptors, which are present at high levels in the heart. And, these, and the binding suppresses the ACE2 uh, receptors, causing a, a inflammation through the upregulation of angiotensin II. And then that's gonna give you the myocarditis <coughs> and other cardiovascular diseases. And so S1 has been found in COVID-19 patients long after the virus is cleared. And I think that may be due to um, translating RNA into DNA. It's not a topic I'm gonna cover in this talk, but I'm very concerned about that. And there's certainly clear evidence that that's happening. Getting a DNA version of the uh, RNA from the, from the vaccine that can then continue to make uh, spike protein long after um, the vaccine has cleared. And uh, S1 is believed to play a critical role in long haul COVID as well. And S1 has also been found in the vasculature following vaccination. And then overexpression of this microRNA is, is associated with worse outcomes in heart attack. So we'll just have some slides that support all those statements here. Here's how spike protein can cause cardiac issues. And this paper was written before COVID-19, but it talked about angiotensin II upregulation causing stress, causing the macrophages to release these exosomes that contain microRNA-155. And that's what's causing this cardiac fibroblast behavior that leads to cardiac rupture, disrupts the uh, proper function of the fibroblast. And so this, in words over here, is basically the same story. S1 disables the receptors, causes angiotensin II to go up, activates the macrophages, they release this microRNA, taken up by the fibroblast, and it suppresses their proliferation. And so the he healing process is not going well as a consequence of this, and you can, uh, you can die from cardiac rupture. And so this is a paper that shows um, 
specifically the spike protein S1. Again, this is a really critical poisonous part of the spike protein, disabling the H2 receptors, uh, causing inflammation, which can lead to blood clots and also damage to the lungs. So this was a specific study with the lungs, but the picture here is good. This shows the virus. These are supposed to be the viruses, but they could just as well be the vaccine particles, the, the exosomes containing uh, the RNA or the protein from the vaccine that exp expose the uh, spike protein on their surface. And then uh, enzymes can chop off the S1, free it up, and it can go to these H2 receptors in a cell and then cause, uh, cause them to be uh, down-regulated and then causing inflammation, thrombosis, pulmonary damage. So um, S1 attached to the H2 receptor shown here. <clears throat> so it's just some quotes from some papers that um, show evidence of this. 11 out of 13 healthcare workers had detectable levels of spike protein or S1 in their blood plasma as early as one day and up to 28 days following the first messenger RNA vaccine. Peak levels were on average at five days. And then S1, this is one that shows S1 by itself, just the S1 piece of the spike protein caused the symptoms that are associated with COVID-19 in mice that had been uh, manipulated to have ACE, human ACE2 receptors. Immune cell infiltration, cytokine storm, impaired barrier function, all the evidence of a, of a response to COVID-19 based on just that one fra fragment of a protein. And so this paper shows that MIR-155 specifically uh, causes worse outcomes in heart attack. And so this is experimentally um, with people. And they found, so these are three different microRNAs. This one's also interesting, and I've been looking into it, MIR-146A. I think it plays a role as well. And I don't know much about this one yet, but uh, these, this one in particular, you can see, is very much upregulated. This is the normal uh, response, normal amount, uh, levels. And then these are two different um, groups of heart attack. It's either early heart attack or after two to seven days uh, of clinical symptoms. So later, having a heart attack, later you get more microRNA-155 building up over time. Uh, so very much uh, distinction from these uh, people who don't have a heart attack in terms of the role that it should play, given the evidence that it's so strong in response to a heart attack. Um, innate immunity resulting in intense inflammatory reaction plays an important role in the pathogenesis of the ventricular rupture after a myocardial infarction. So again, this is showing disrupted fibroblast activity. Now, this is really interesting, and I've started to dig more into this topic because I think it's super important. Uh, the spike protein causes cells to merge together and become giant cells. Multiple cells gather together and lose their their membrane next to each other and become a giant cell with lots of nuclei and also with micronuclei. And that's important because these micronuclei are evidence of DNA double strand breaks. The DNA got broken and then it got put together wrong. And you end up with these bizarre shapes of uh, in, the, in the nucleus that are not normal. And so that's an indication, strong indication of genetic mutations. This is often used to looking for double strand breaks through these micronuclei to be evidence of, of, a, of a chemical being toxic. And so those genetic mutations then can lead to cancer. And it's just fascinating that the spike protein causes this to happen. Um, and so that's something I'm looking into more right now. This is a lovely paper with some beautiful photos. And this is just one of them um, showing how spike protein induces the same problem. Um, fusing, fusing together multiple cells in the heart cells, in the cardiomyocytes. Um, it induces these phytopodia, these little strands here are the phytopodia that hook the two cells together, and then eventually they become one cell. Um, and the furin cleavage site, which chops it in half between S1 and S2, is essential for syncytial formation. Um, so here's a, uh, another chart from our, our, our paper. 
number of events in VAERS for 2021 where cardiac symptoms were indicated again. Uh, the whole year, all the vaccines, what percentage were uh, COVID vaccines for these conditions, myocarditis, a respiratory or cardiac arrest, arrhythmias, heart attack, heart failure, these are all the conditions, total of over 8,000 cases in 2021. And that was almost 98% of the total were COVID vaccines. So a tremendous signal here for heart problems with uh, people uh, responding to the vaccines. And of course, we've heard a lot about myocarditis in young men. Um, that's very uh, disturbing with the vaccines that they're getting. So the G quadruplexes, uh, many unknowns. This is something I really didn't know anything about until I started to uh, met up with Anthony Kyriakopoulos, and it's been a wonderful collaboration for me. And I, he's been sending me papers, and I've been reading. It's a very uh, difficult and complicated subject. Uh, it's become a hot topic, I think, in uh, in a certain circles in the research community. Um, and they're all very puzzled as to exactly what they do and how they work, but they know it's really, really important because they're highly conserved and they are able to form gelled water. So it's very interesting. These things are basically four um, guanines. These are guanines are one of the four nucleotides in the, in the RNA or the DNA. And they form an interesting structure like this. These are the guanines and you can get lots of them uh, forming a kind of a structure they seeded by an, an ion, usually potassium, um, and they basically build gelled water around portions of the RNA, which, uh, which keeps them from being able to react. They become sort of frozen, you could say, kind of like freezing them in jello. And that can, for example, um, protect you from cancer because the, the oncogenes, uh, the genes that are expressed in association with cancer that turn on cancer, um, have these G quadruplexes in their control regions. And they, so they stay gelled. But if something comes along and ungels them, then you are uh, you are in uh, launching uh, activation of the cancer of the pro protons that are linked to cancer, and so uh, many proteins that regulate protein production bind to these G4s to carry out their regulatory influence, and it can be both ways. Some of them will make it more gelled, and other ones make it less gelled. Prion proteins have many G4s in their messenger RNA, and the prion protein itself is one of these proteins that binds to emit to gel to G4s. And it binds to the G4s that are in its own messenger RNA. So this is very incestuous, if you will. It's quite fascinating that the protein binds to its own G4s and influences the, uh, the, the, the RNA. And in particular, it can cause the protein to get misfolded into its toxic form in the process of binding to G4s. So this becomes very important when you look at spike because spike is a prion-like protein. Prion proteins have a characteristic motif called a GXXG motif which is these Gs are glycines, and this is in the protein uh, field. So G for glycine, X for wildcard, any, any um, amino acid in between, but, but, but spaced by three. And these patterns go are very common in prion proteins and in prion-like proteins. And most proteins don't have any. The human prion protein has 14 of these things. Amyloid beta, which is associated with Alzheimer's, has four. And the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein has seven. So you can see that it's quite uh, striking in its, uh, in its indicators for uh, prion-like characteristics. And we saw earlier that it has this uh, pop, you know, activity of being able to activate alpha-synuclein and to misfold alpha-synuclein, which is a characteristic uh, feature of prion-like proteins. So, um, so the messenger and the messenger RNA vaccines has been manipulated to be enriched in guanine through a process called codon optimization. This is to make it really efficient at making protein fast. Um, and this causes it to produce excess G4s compared to the viral version. So this is this uh, sequence, and I'll get to this in, more of this in a moment, but I just want to show it here, G, 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 W, G. This is the protein 
uh, the sequence in the protein and this um, and then these are the codes that correspond to these UGG codes uh, for this uh, W here, which I think is, uh, yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> I've lost, the, <clears throat> lost a bit of them. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is this enrichment in G4, really quite interesting and disturbing. And something that they haven't, there's a few people that have drawn attention to this, but for the most part, the industry seems to not even uh, think about this. But the codon optimization, uh, they choose different uh, sequences uh, of, of the code, this, this redundant code, and they choose the one that's most efficient at, at all the spots to make the, to make the RNA make protein very fast. Uh, but that, in, in general, results in extra GCs. And so these are what cause these, uh, these um, G4s to form. The original protein has 36% of this GC content. Only four G4s can be produced. The Pfizer vaccine has 53% with nine G4s uh, being possible. And Moderna has 61% with 19 G4s. So many more G4s can be formed from the um, RNA in the vaccines compared to the RNA that the, that the virus makes. And so, uh, so this is where I want to get into this. Yeah, I thought it was tryptophan, but I wasn't sure. The W stands for tryptophan, <clears throat> and that's why I got a little bit stumbled there. But um, so it's it's really interesting that this uh, with the prion protein, it has this sequence GGGWG that occurs multiple times, and this is the protein glycine, 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 tryptophan, glycine, and tryptophan's code is UGG, and and glycine's code is GGX. So GGG can code for for glycine. And so you get this sequence, uh, GGG, uh, WG, that has this sequence in the RNA with all these opportunities for G4 formation. <clears throat> and then this is just showing the, um, the actual prion protein itself has this long sequence of this pattern um, shown here. That's a piece of the protein in the, um, in the prion protein. And, and you can see these, this is this GGGWG forming over and over again here. And also up here, you have this regular spacing of the GXXXG motif, uh, long sequence of GXXXG in the prion protein. And so this is the protein and this is the RNA. So you can see the GGU and the, uh, the tryptophan is, is a little different. And so you have all these GGs in here. And then when you have pass, potassium, can form, um, can trigger the formation of these G4s uh, from that motif. <clears throat> so the prion proteins bind to the G4s in their own messenger RNA, and this induces the misfolding of the prion protein that leads to disease. So you would assume then that the spike protein can also bind to the G4s. It's got many more G4s when it's produced by a vaccine, and it can bind to them and it can cause it to misfold. So you're making spike protein quickly when you have a high concentration of a prion-like protein that's more inclined to disfold, to, to misfold. And on top of that, you have all this opportunity for it to bind to G4. So it seems like a double hit to me to encourage the vaccine version of the spike protein to be particularly toxic in terms of its ability to produce neurodegenerative disease. Um, so just a few more topics here that are, papers that have come up recently that I find very interesting. SARS-CoV-2-S1 protein persistence in SARS-CoV-2 negative post-vaccination individuals who have the symptoms of long COVID. So people are getting essentially long COVID from the vaccine, it's very clear to me. And this was uh, this involved 50 people who had experienced the symptoms of long COVID after vaccination, never had caught COVID, but they still had the, uh, the symptoms. And they had statistically significant elevation of all these different indicators of platelet activation and inflammation. And then the S1 pept peptides, as well as mutant S1 peptides, and I accentuate mutant here because I suspect that's being caused by the optimization. The codon optimization is causing it to make RNA, to make protein quickly, 
which is causing it to make errors. And that's well known that when it makes it faster, it's more inclined to make errors, as you might expect, because anybody moving, you know, working fast is going to be more likely to have mistakes. <laughs> and so the S1 peptides and the S2 peptides were pre present in CD16 plus non-classical monocytes. These particular monocytes seem to be extremely interesting because they're the ones that are showing up with this long-term ability to produce spike protein or to keep spike protein from breaking down. We're not sure what, but I suspect it has to do with converting the RNA into DNA. And now they've got a DNA reservoir from which they can continue to make spike protein long after the vaccination is over. This one is also interesting, and I want to look into this more. This is a, a potent endotoxin that's synthesized by Staph aureus. There's a sequence in the, S1, in the S1 of the spike protein that is very similar to this endotoxin. And so these are authors, are, and there's other papers that are showing this too, that this it looks like there's this very toxic piece of this S1 unit that becomes exposed with the furin cleavage site. So when you cut, cut it off with furin, that's now exposed and it can become very toxic. And the T cells can respond to it by increased uh, by increasing the, the release of, of adrenaline and increased tissue damage. So a more extreme response because of the toxicity of this endotoxin that's exposed on the surface after the furin cleavage. This looks very significant to me, and I want to study this more. Uh, this this just came out. I've been watching evidence of, um, of reproductive rates because I'm quite concerned about the the vaccine causing um, reproductive uh, failure. Um, I know that uh, there was an analysis from Japan that showed that after the uh, spleen, the next highest level was found in the ovaries in females. And that's very disturbing to me because it's going to cause inflammation. Um, these are the this. So there's evidence showing up from Taiwan that looks suspicious because Taiwan had a drop of like 20, 27 percent drop. Uh, in the first quarter of this year compared to last year. And, and it was nine months before that that they had launched a major uh, campaign for vaccination of the young people. And this is Hungary. And this is very striking because they looked at the um, counties, county by county data they had. Uh, it, very fortunately that Hungary keeps this kind of data of the vaccination rate and of the fertility rate in the counties. And so they were able to, um, to look at all the counties and they found that the reproductive rate went down in all the counties, but it went down less in the counties that had fewer vaccines. So this is a really nice correlation between the level of vaccination and the level of drop, um, which gives you a much stronger signal than just to say, to look at the two numbers independently. So you can see 15% drop for these high, highest, five highest counties, and only 5% drop for the five lowest counties. Um, so I think we really we're going to get a lot of data soon uh, because of course you have to wait to get the evidence of what it's doing to reproduction. But I have a feeling it's going to be pretty uh, disruptive of the uh, young people's ability to um, produce children. Um, now, this is also very disturbing to me. The FDA has decided this is in America, of course, it's not necessary to do any clinical trials for new versions. I was actually afraid they were going to do this back when I wrote the first paper with Greg Nye. I was anticipating because they were sort of saying, oh, it's so flexible. We can just make a new code. We can keep up with the mutations. This was their vision. And I, I even then I was thinking that's not going to work. And we, and we wrote about it, that there's going to be an endless cat and mouse game uh, where they have to keep updating the vaccine. And then... Um, Meanwhile, the virus has mutated. By the time they get it released, it's already too late um, in an endless um, sequence of, vac of vaccine boosters uh, for the lifespan of the person until, <laughs> until their immune system is completely destroyed. So the FDA has decided it's not necessary to do any clinical trials <clears throat> for new versions of the messenger RNA vaccines with mixes of multiple strains of the spike protein um, incorporated into it. So, of course, they're now 
putting together a version that has uh, the BA.1 along with the original Wuhan strain, which I don't know why they're still using the original because it's so far away from what we've got today that it's pretty useless. Um, but they're going to put those two together and they're not going to study it. They're just going to release it, you know, assuming that it's going to be fine, which I find really shocking. We don't know whether it's going to be twice as much or whether it's going to be half and half or what they're going to do, but they don't need to test it. They can just roll it out. And um, meanwhile, Omicron is continuing to, uh, to mutate and they're calling these Omicron versions, but BA4 and 5 are very different from BA1. And I think we've now got a BA7.5. I mean, we're not going to be able to keep up with this. We're always going to be behind. Um, we're just going to be continuing to uh, inject people with a toxic uh, spike protein uh, for no good reason. And so I think it's really a farce what's going on right now. And of course, the U.S. has now, as I said, uh, licensed the vaccine, encouraged parents to get their children vaccinated six months old, two years old. I mean, I think it's devastating. So people are waking up. This is the good news. And I think um, I'm really happy to see this. When um, the first dose, the percentage of people who accepted it, a large percentage, the red, and only this amount rejected it. With the second dose, there was already a shift upward on the number who rejected it. But by the booster shot, there's a lot of people who are rejecting the booster. And so I'm hoping that the population will, will, will wake up and decide they're not going to follow um, what the government is recommending. So in summary, the RNA vaccines um, have not been adequately evaluated for safety and effectiveness. Um, the RNA in the vaccine has been highly altered compared to the original viral version. It induces rapid production of spike protein, <clears throat> excuse me, by human immune cells in the spleen over a sustained long duration. Spike is a neurotoxic protein, prion-like protein that induces a strong inflammatory response and subsequent tissue destruction. Exosomes play a central role in the distribution of toxic spike protein to diverse organs, notably the heart and the brain. And there's growing evidence that these vaccines may cause infertility and people are, are wising up. So thank you. For your time and we have a little bit of time for discussion so super that's that was really amazing this presentation i mean obviously i'm not under, able to understand all the medical or like the the cellular um, details that you um, explained but i have a, a few questions i was wa wondering i mean these elements that we can see in there there's these g quadruplexes and the other things is that really what is that necessary for what the vaccine is supposed to do. I mean, could it also have been developed without these interesting new structures or like special um, elements that you see? Because I assume they're not in the normal vaccines. Well, I mean, they're I mean, not the, in the original, yeah. It, it, uh, I mean, the, the standard, RNA of the, of the virus. vaccine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think their logic was simply, we need to make sure that it makes it fast. They, they were really obsessed on make the spike protein fast, don't break down, don't be allowed to turn off the making of the spike protein. They were so obsessed with the idea it was going to get broken down by all these, um, you know, the, the, the cells have many opportunities to try to get rid of this stuff. They don't want it. And so you've got to fight that. You know, we have to design really cleverly, design your vaccine to be, um, to be protected from the attack by the cells that are responding to it appropriately to try to get rid of it. They're trying to keep that from happening. So, of course, the, the pseudouridines is one important step that was a breakthrough for them to be able to keep it from getting broken down because that makes it really sturdy. But the, the G quadruplexes, I suspect that it's an accident. They, they basically, their logic was, oh, let's replace the codons because we know um, each, each um, amino acid has usually has multiple codons that will uh, produce the same uh, amino will work with the same amino acid in constructing the uh, protein 
and multiple different co codons produce the same uh, amino acid. So you can choose a different codon, codon and still get the same protein. But then they know that certain codons are really efficient, that they, they will allow uh, coding to happen, to the protein to be made more quickly. And of course, that also produces those errors, which I was really intrigued by those mutant um, spike proteins that were showing up from the vaccine, because I've been expecting that it would cause um, a variation in the actual product production would be irregular. It wouldn't produce a, a clean uh, copy of the protein with the all different versions of it, which is also an interesting uh, problem. But the um, the G4s are sort of an accidental side effect of the op optimization because the, the uh, and it may be also part of the whole coding of the system, but the ones that work well are the ones that produce G4s. That's just a sort of property of, of, a, of the code. And so by virtue of wanting it to move to make spike protein quickly, they ended up with uh, lots of G4s. Mm -hmm. Well, and then they don't understand what they do. So we really, I mean, this when we wrote a lot about the G4s, as I said, Anthony's an expert on that. And so he wrote the parts in our paper, I was struggling to understand. And I think everyone who's doing the research is struggling to understand what's going on, because uh, he believes a spike protein can go into the nucleus, bind to the G4s um, that are keeping the uh, oncogenes at bay, and activate the oncogenes. So he thinks a spike protein can go into the nucleus and cause um, the cell to start producing the proteins that lead to cancer. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, that's really, really scary. So it's a, the G4s are a big mystery, uh, even to the people who are studying them. And you, you can look up, you know, look up the papers. I, I, I sort of get interested in these, I love puzzles. And so the G4s are really a puzzle and uh, I want to understand them better, but unfortunately nobody understands them and so as far as i can tell uh, you read the papers and even the papers are confusing because they're not sure what's going on but they're very um highly conserved which means that they're very important to biology mm -hmm. and they gel water which is also very interesting to me because i've really been interested in gelled water and the role that it plays in biology but do you think that if they are um, because it seems to be the same kind of process in all the vaccines that we can see now it's the same kind of uh, constellation. They're all doing the same or very similar kind of uh, recipe for the for creating the vaccine. I mean, do you think that, I mean, it must be like, I have two questions with that regard. Is it likely that it happens that like, I mean, if you think about like business secrets, that they would all design basically the same kind of thing at the same time? I mean, like one thing they could have picked, like maybe apart from the virus, not the spike protein, but something that's maybe less toxic. I mean, why do I know, why, I know why do why they the all go in the it same is. direction? Plus, I mean, I assume they have really, I mean, this must be like super high strong uh, scientists or like people who are like uh, experts who work with these things and put all their brain into uh, brains into, you know, like designing this thing. Do you really think that they don't understand what they're doing? I mean, is this... I know, that's a good question. I find it amazing that they don't seem to be worried about what this might do to the human population. They seem to be very eager to get it into all the arms of all the people in the world, uh, the people who are producing it. Of course, they're making lots of money, so that's happy, they're happy about that. And they're also protected, certainly from the United States. You know, No matter what happens to you, you can't sue the company as long as we've got this emergency use situation. So I think they're they're loving it, right? They don't seem to care that they're harming people. That's the part that puzzles me. They don't seem to care. 
as long as they can make a lot of money and the government's willing to, to, to buy all these vaccines, they're happy. And especially because they can't be sued. Uh, that's crucial. I think if they lost that protection, um, they'd stop making these. That's what I believe. I think they know that they're too risky to make if they can be sued from the consequences of them. But they could have picked a different type of the different part of the of the vaccine, um, the, the the virus, to make the vaccine. So yeah, I which think other part, part was would the have... spike protein? The spike protein is on the surface, and so they wanted to kind of get uh, the antibodies to respond to the a virus while it's still outside the cell. That would be my guess. If I were they, I would think, well, let's do a protein that's on the surface because then we can grab the virus and get it cleared before it infects the cell. Uh, these other proteins are hiding inside the virus, you know, and they get expressed once the virus is taken up by a cell, they get expressed and then antibodies do get developed against them. And those antibodies play an important role in protecting from the disease in the future. Um, but it depends on the following infection. And, and, and I think they felt that wasn't going to be as good as catching it before it ever got inside the cell, I'm guessing. I think they've, they've made a mistake there, because two mistakes actually. One, because the spike protein is so toxic and they're causing you to make lots of it. And that's really, really dangerous. And two is because the spike protein mutates really quickly. These other proteins that are inside the virus are much more stable. So if you had developed antibodies to those, they would last even against very different strains of the virus would still have intact protein that would match the antibodies that were produced. And, and actually, it's interesting because I think there was a paper that I saw that showed that the vaccinated people, when they caught the disease, uh, they, so I think they're already getting their immune cells damaged to the point where they can't uh, respond well to new exposures. And so when they get the disease and then they have those internal proteins, they could be making antibodies to them, but they don't not nearly as well as the people who weren't vaccinated. So they're not as responsive to new information uh, because the immune cells have kind of gotten diverted by memorizing this you know, massive dose of spike protein. And so they're not able to be agile to go ahead and become something different that could be an antibody to um, you know, the actual current version of the spike protein. So both the uh, new antibodies to the specific new strain of, of the you know, new sequence of the spike but also antibodies to other proteins in the virus that will protect you from infection. Those antibodies are not being produced nearly as well by the people who've been vaccinated compared to the naive people. Well, and um, you had this slide that um, that the, the spike production seemed to have, I think it was like a spike production seemed to have gone down a little bit like like first day and then the highest point in day five and then going down like 28th day so is there any um so one could hope you know that it dies down after some time and we we know from the pathologist Anne Burkhardt that he found uh, I think it was like um, after six months uh, they still found some activity with the spike in in organs and so on um like but It, 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 can there be hope if someone stays away from the stuff um, that maybe just the first vaccine, you know, like first dose that it then dies down and is at some point gone or would we need? I know. To... I wonder about that. Yeah. I wonder to what extent you can fully recover from a vaccine. Like, is it a permanent change of your immune system that will never you'll never get back to where you were before the vaccine? It's a huge question. And I don't know the answer. Uh, certainly the antibodies come on very strong after about a couple of weeks. And then they start fading and they fade quickly. And it seems that they fade faster with each booster, which is really disturbing because by the time you've had 15 boosters, you're not going to have any response that's worth having. Um, so it's, um, and then as the antibodies fade, 
does it, in fact, does the immune system recover from the damage that was done by the vaccine or not? And, and I think that's an unanswered question at this point. You know, this whole business of the um, suppressing of the type 1 interferon response, does that also go away or does it stay? Uh, we don't know. And of course, there's all this discussion about um, antibody-dependent enhancement um, that we've seen where people are expecting that um, people who got vaccinated are actually going to be worse off um, down the road once, they, once the vaccine has sort of worn off. Once the antibodies wear off, you no longer have that protection. Are you now worse off than the person who never got vaccinated is another question. My, th my thinking is that you are. And of course, that's because of the damage that's been done to your innate immune system. What we need is to build up the innate immune system. And I really feel frustrated with the government for not telling us some very simple, really good advice, like get out in the sunlight, get your vitamin D up, you know, eat healthy food, eat whole foods, eat organic food. I mean, why aren't they telling us that? Because our country is so sick already. You know, we have diabetes, obesity, all these problems and autism in the children. Um, the United States is is really uh, hurting in terms of their health con health conditions, and and I believe it's due to our toxic exposures from our food. And of course, I've written a book about glyphosate, uh, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. And I think glyphosate is playing a role in the uh, in the difficulties that the United States is having in in trying to cope with this uh, vi virus because we are so poisoned by glyphosate and other chemicals in our food that it's disrupted our immune system to the point where we can't fight off the virus. Mm -hmm. And it's just the government's not saying anything about that, which really annoys me. Well, it's all about, you know, vaccines. Yeah, and of course, it's the same here. Drugs. It's everywhere. They really try to push it upon you. And um, I have one last question with regard to this cancer, um, with these cell-cell uh, situation that it these, they grow together. So how likely is it that if you have this fusion of the cells, that there's really going to be like uh, cancerous activity in there? I know. Well, that's another question that I'm researching right now, and we're working on another paper. The, the, the four of us have another paper under review currently, and we're working on a third paper now. So I'm having a lot of fun with these, uh, working with these people. Um, and uh, we're looking at, at prion disease, actually, specifically in this one, but also gets into cancer. And as I said, uh, Anthony Kyriakopoulos believes that the spike protein goes into the nucleus. There was a study um, that showed that the spike protein goes into the nucleus and causes the activation of uh, or the suppression of genes that would protect from cancer. Uh, and that study, unfortunately, got retracted. So um, I don't know whether the study was valid or not, but if it's retracted, you can't really use it as evidence. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's very disappointing. But I, I do think that we need more research on that question. Is, is the spike protein, and of course, acting as a prion-like protein, it can have effect on the G4s, which can activate on oncogenes, which are th that is a direct path to cancer. But the fact that it caused this this syncytial formation, and those cells had micro, and that's how you get cancer. So that's very clear. And the other thing is that those cells become senescent, and and the, so the virus, the uh, spike protein, causes cells first of all, to merge together. And it can cause immune cells to do that too. So it's really interesting. It's been shown to be true in the, um, in the lungs. In fact, the disease, there have been papers that show that the disease, uh, COVID-19, causes cells to merge together, the fibroblasts in the lungs. And then the myocarditis, the, uh, the, the muscle cells in the heart also form these syncytia. 
and immune cells can get together and form syncytia. So it's really, really interesting. It's, a, it's a, another one of these processes that goes on in biology that I'm just trying to learn a lot about right now. So I've been reading about this syncytia formation process, and it also leads to this um, senescence, which is basically the cells get into a very weird state in which they're not, they don't get cleared. So usually a cell you know, can get injured, it can die, then the immune cells eat it up and it's gone. But they can become this interesting state in which they're not dead. They're still alive. They're still working, and they're producing an inflammatory signals. So they're they're sitting there causing inflammation and not doing their job. So whatever they used to do, they're not doing it anymore. They're just sitting there causing inflammation, and that's called senescent cells. And you get more and more senescent cells as you age, and it's sort of a direct indicator of aging. And you can have senescent cells in the brain as well. And so they're um, they're bad news. But the um, but the, the spike protein induces syncytia formation, which leads to senescence. And so you've got this clear evidence that the spike protein is going to cause you to have more of these senescent cells, which is going to mean that you're aging faster. And I think that's going to be one of the characteristics of the vaccine, that people who get lots of boosters are going to age faster than people who don't. And we see everything that people have, it seems like gets worse after the vaccine. I feel like so many people talk about, oh, I, you know, I had Parkinson's, but it got much worse after the vaccine, that kind of thing what you already have. I had cancer, it got activated after the vaccine, that kind of thing. We're seeing these uh, these happening and people who are reporting to me through email, for example, they're telling me their stories. Wow, that's that's really frightening. And I can, I mean, people say that also, I don't know, I haven't like experienced this myself, that people say I, you know, someone in that who's close to me, like got vaccinated and now this person looks like 10 years older or whatever, five yeah, years older, all of a sudden. That's, that's what some people say. I don't know if that is true or not. I, as I say, I've not experienced it. And, um, but would you, I, I was wondering, uh, that's just a sort of a last, last question, is um, the, do you know if there's any research being done on the children born by vaccinated uh, people? Yes, I'm worried about that. Um, I only hear kind of hearsay, you know, from medical people who are saying that they're seeing uh, larger, they feel like there's more cases. And of course, these things are kind of hard to intuit, right? You know, we hear about all these people dropping dead at the age of 25. And feels like there's many more than there used to be. But is it just because we're so keen to find them? I don't know. I mean, people, it's just like we're only diagnosing it more. That's what they say about autism. Autism goes up every year in this country. Oh, we're just diagnosing it more. It's such a great excuse to not bother to look and see what's causing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know if, um, I know that the VAERS database certainly has a huge signal for menstrual issues, you know, periods getting messed up, either heavy periods, irregular periods, all kinds of stuff that happens after the vaccine. So very clear that it's affecting the uh, reproductive system of the female. Also miscarriages. Miscarriage is another very strong signal in the VAERS database. I haven't reported about that. We didn't talk about that in our paper, but I am interested in that. And especially because I'm seeing this evidence of a drop in fertility. Uh, in various countries. I think Germany has some evidence of that as well. You might know more than I do, but, um, and so, um, and of course, Taiwan, I, Taiwan is quite amazing, 27% drop uh, over one year. Uh, that's, that's they already have a very low reproductive rate, so they, they can't afford to drop too much more, you know. And, but the children, are they're also being uh, scrutinized by someone. I mean, if you have like maybe a child that seems to be healthy, but then uh, upon birth and then maybe like half a year later, 
you see that something's happening? You don't know if there's anything like, I mean, studies I know, going on. I know, it's so hard there. to connect the dots, although there are some reports in the VAERS database that are really shocking of uh, babies that are nursing and the mother gets the vaccine while they're nursing and the baby gets very sick. Uh, there's reports of that in, in the VAERS database. So I do believe that the um, probably exosomes in the breast milk are being transferred to the child and they're getting, and they're toxic to the child. Yeah. It really doesn't look good. That's that's very unpleasant news. But I think it's very important that we look at this in detail, and hopefully, uh, and, I mean, do you think that there's any option to stop this process by like some some <laughs> remedy or like taking down the government? No, I mean, that's I mean the a, government I, seemed to be so well, determined I, I, I didn't to get these vaccines I, I didn't mean the that, political sure, process. But... I I meant the uh, inside the body. This process. I know. I, I don't know. I mean, some people, of course, I think it is people who are already unhealthy for other reasons who are most susceptible, just like they're the ones that are most susceptible to COVID. They're also the ones that are most susceptible to vaccine damage. Probably if you have a good immune system, um, you can clear the spike protein quickly that's being produced through the instruction of the vaccine. Uh, your immune cells can clear it, um, which then keeps it from being so toxic. So it's when your immune cells are weak that they can't clear the, the spike protein, that the spike protein is then able to move around in the body through those exosomes and get delivered to places where it can, can cause a lot of destruction. So um, it's certainly that my advice to people is to stay healthy, eat, eat healthy food, exercise, get out in the sunlight, lose weight, you know, stay healthy. I think that's the best uh, way to protect yourself from both the vaccine and the disease. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for all this uh, instructive or like very interesting, uh, um, these interesting information that's, uh, it's really, I mean, we have to look really in detail into this. It's very important that people like you do this. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, important to waken up, wake up people. Plus also, I mean, maybe to hopefully find some, some sort of treatment or whatever because it i mean there's so much suffering going on right now i mean and all these people right, that I know. it's really um going to be a difficult path back to normalcy i think yeah once we recognize and i really hope that the governments themselves will wake up and recognize that they're doing a foolish thing with trying to get the vaccines into the arms of the entire population it's very foolish what they're doing i hope they can see that um soon <laughs> you know yeah. i keep thinking that the evidence is so overwhelming that of course they're going to back down but they seem to be quite determined um very strong pressure on the other side yeah it's not a health agenda i would say it has must have other reasons behind it otherwise it wouldn't be like this yeah well thanks so much this was very interesting great that you gave this presentation to us thank you thank you so much have, for having me have my a, pleasure have a great weekend then you too bye you. bye Ja, wir sind am Ende der Sitzung. Ich weiß gar nicht, ob wir noch Rainer was supposed to announce this, so I don't have the information. Maybe somebody can uh, give me that. Otherwise, we'll be surprised and see what's coming up. So I can see uh, there's a speech by Christoph Scheiner, someone of the um, Liberal Party in Austria, who probably has some critical comments on the overall situation. Otherwise, we're at the end of the uh, session. If you want to support our work, 
you have the possibility. We're grateful for any support because we can't do this without any money here. And uh, otherwise, I would like to uh, wish you a nice uh, Friday evening and a nice weekend. I can see uh, the uh, reminder that at the end, we will show you uh, where you can see this new format, this follow-up that Raina and I uh, have come up with, where you can see a summary um, together with some comments. So have a nice weekend. See you next week. And what we have here now, once again, is madness and shows us one thing only because we're not having mandatory vaccines. It doesn't mean that this government in its madness with respect to Corona will not carry on in autumn because this is the Federal Office for Safety in uh, in health, you'll know this from uh, 12th of uh, July 2027, important information of the federal ministry to protect the customers, uh, the consumers and the health security in the case of uh, expired COVID uh, therapeutica. So, dear coordinators, in this case, if there are, if the shelf life is off, these must not be uh, disposed, but should be again used in the um, Austrian population. So now we would think it's not too bad. However, if it is put this way, it is to be made sure that the charges which are out of their shelf life, if the shelf life is extended afterwards by EMA, it should still be used on the Austrian population. So that means we are to get the expired vaccines, which didn't work in the first case. Now we should get it in after it's expired because this government uh, ordered too many doses. That's something that you should really imagine. This is the letter that the doctors got. One of them sent it to me, thanks God. Uh, so everybody who wants to get vaccinated, enjoy the expired vaccinations because that's what they are going to do. Um, uh, that's it. So um, we just heard we just heard doctor said that um, this uh, expired uh, stuff is something that we should use very good how these rules are made here very very interesting not a single person in austria will receive a, an expired vaccine and the piece of paper that you held up is nothing but an uh, indication uh, that the vaccines shouldn't be thrown out. Why? Because we want to exchange them. Uh, first of all, please, we're not on a first-name basis. And secondly, uh, federal councillor, you can use this as a carnival's um, um, uh, speech. Yes, uh, it's not... Uh, in line with the reputation of the parliament, but I will not allow you to 
explain uh, or tell the Austrian population that they will receive expired vaccination. That's not true. It's simply not true. And uh, despite all polemics, uh, I would like to ask you, with all polemics, please stick to the truth. At least stay close to the truth. At least close to the truth. And just because there's a um, informative letter going out to the uh, doctors asking them not to throw out uh, vaccine doses, um, pointing out that uh, they will be administered to people, um, that is just not true. Probably, dear minister, you wouldn't know this letter. Well, of course we know <clears throat> it. I'm not mad. So, you don't know. What, what does it say here? You said... You said the doses that we have to use are going to be exchanged. That's what you said, is it? Okay. So, but you write here, and now we can talk about truth or not truth. This way, it must be ensured that the uh, charges, in the case of a uh, subjective extension of a later extension of the shelf life by the EMA should be used on the people. So, if they were to be exchanged, they would. you would write this here, wouldn't you? So, again, somehow you don't get it here. So, the expired batches are to be extended by the by the European unions. Sorry for this. If I get a yogurt with an expired shelf life in the supermarket and I put a new shelf life on, um, that's not going to work, is it? So this is not normal. Uh, expired is expired. This is your letter. This is not from anybody. It's not from somebody out of the parliament or anybody in in the parliament or any ministry. It's your ministry who wrote this. An expired uh, batch will be extended after it expired. So, expired is expired, isn't it? So, you can say whatever you want about this. That's not normal, is it? And then you say, I'm, I'm not talking the truth. Expired is expired, isn't it? What is there to discuss about that? So you can not know your own letters here. That is very embarrassing. <laughs>